Welcome to Having a Gas, the podcast that explores music, advertising, both, and occasionally neither. I'm Greg Owens, creative director at Gas Music, and I'll be your host and guide as we get through this thing called life. You'll also be hearing from the team here at Gas as you get a front row seat to the chaotic rhythm of life in this studio. In each episode, we'll also be speaking to industry experts, cutting edge innovators, and visionary producers. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode one of the new format of Having a Gas. Um, for anyone who's still listening or who's familiar with the old format, basically it's been an interview podcast uh, up until now. We started that in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, and really it was just me interviewing uh, someone, uh, first people from the advertising industry, which is the uh, industry that Gas Music serves and works in. And then afterwards we found out that we could get access to big name professionals from the music industry. Uh, the most successful of whom was Andrew Sheps, who we'll be hearing from later in this episode. Um, but, but I noticed something. I noticed that I didn't really, um, want to listen to my own podcast and rightly or wrongly, one of the rules that we like to live by at gas is like, we, we don't want to produce content that we wouldn't like, you know, we, um, are quite taken with the, uh, George Martin quote when he said, you know, he thought when he signed the Beatles, not to, we're not comparing ourselves to that, but he said that, uh, he thought the music of the Beatles was okay. But he really liked them as people. And he thought, well, since I like them, maybe other people will. Uh, I know that Rick Rubin works like that. I think that's a really good uh, creative foundation to say, you know, if you like it, then perhaps other people will. But if you don't, then it's got no chance. I think David Lynch has something like that as well. So for that reason, I wanted to kind of showcase the the team that I work with here at Gas because um, it's a weird life we have. And it's, you know, every day is a kind of um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a bizarre comedy of errors. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to get my team on the podcast here and, uh, hopefully, hopefully you'll like them as well. So, um, so now we're going to be having a chat segment where we discuss our industry, what's going on in it. We discuss music. We discuss what's going on in the broader world of film music. And, uh, we also have, you know, some items to get through as well. So basically I'm just giving you all of this primer because this is a pilot episode and, uh, there may be some stumbling and it may be uh, a little bit, um, what would you call it? You may be able to tell that it's the first time we're doing it. Uh, but uh, if you stick with us, uh, let's see where it goes. I'm quite excited and I, and I and we really enjoyed it. So to everyone who's still listening, thanks for listening. And uh, let's get into the studio with the gas team. Gas music, you know. And, and with that, we crashed into the first episode of Having a Gas, the new way of doing it. Uh, for any listeners who may have been retained from the old way, basically Having a Gas so far has just been a podcast for gas music hosted by me, Greg Owens, the most important person at gas, where I interview a famous person from the music industry. And that ticked along nicely for a long time, but we're now breaking it out into a slightly different format. I've got some colleagues, you might like them in the same manner that I do, so I'm going to go around the table and introduce them. There's my head of production and director of sound, Aaron Bentley. Recording this whole thing and bearing the responsibility for the output is a young intern named Ruri Oliphant. Ruri, make yourself known. I muted Aaron's mic. Good. And uh, Ruri is also the only person who does not hail from this country. Welcome from Scotland to England, Ruri. I don't know what that was meant to mean, but I just said it anyway. They don't let me back. Okay, good thing is you're editing this, so this better get edited out. And then to Ruri's left is Nathan DeGiorgi, who is basically like me, but in a lesser way. A dog's body with no real job title and uh, just is under a lot of pressure. Nathan, make yourself known. 
Was that was there a compliment in there? Truth. Or that's what it is. Pure truth. truth. It was actually more of an insult. Basically, said you're just a dog's body and you do grunt work. That is uh, the nicest thing someone has said to me in weeks. You so are I will take that. And, Nathan uh, great is to be here. from Oxbridge, which is why Nathan qualifies for that kind of chit chat. Uh, but not really. So, um, this is a pilot episode, and most pilot episodes are pretty improvised, and you basically figure out what the show is going to be. We've got some items that we've thought about. We've got a story from Ruri. We're going to chat a little bit about the Oscars, and we've got a great interview with Andrew Sheps, who is probably we owe to Andrew Sheps the uh, actual progression of our business. Um, yeah, that, that that there's like I think there's two strands to that because the first bit is is his mix with the masters is impeccable. And yeah. I would encourage anyone to watch it who is interested in mixing music. Like uh, if you don't know how to mix, then you watch his mix with the masters. Yeah. You've got a, be- a, a good a, idea. Yeah, and I'd say it's a really good kind of entry level uh, masterclass. Only for not because it's basic, but because Andrew is really good at explaining everything. Yeah. Uh, to in a way that I think a lot of people will understand and engage with. Like there's a lot of mix with the masters where people are just flying through it. You yeah. Know, and it's kind of hard to follow. Like Jason Joshua is the main example of that, isn't he? So Jason Joshua is is he the assistant to Dave Pensado? I'm not to be totally honest. I'm not exactly how how it works. I I I know that Jason is a fully fledged mix engineer in yeah. his own name and his own right, and is absolutely brilliant and well respected. In the and mix they mixed, community, they mixed Shape of You together, didn't they? Ed Sheeran's Shape of You. Yes, I know, I, and I know they both worked on that, but I don't know what the split's like. Um, I know Jason's worked with Dave for a long time, but how their relationship started, I don't know. Yeah, but if you want to learn to mix and you watch Jason, uh, Jason Joshua's tutorials, he kind of flies through using very, very low res jargon to explain stuff, doesn't he? So he's like, I want it to bang, and I want it to bang at this level, so better there. And you're like, yeah, I don't know what it means. And that works for a lot of people. Skrillex is, is similar, yes. you know, when, when he's talking through his workflow, and that, that, that can be great, but Andrew's so methodical yes. and, and really cohesive. And the other part is that uh, we accidentally stumbled into <laughs> kind of YouTube figures by posting Andrew... Uh, of what was that like two years ago? That's now? right. Yeah, in 2021, we posted a cut down from the first having a gas interview with Andrew Sheps, and it garnered over the space of uh, Gary's Stag Weekend that we were at Fuck. at the time uh, about 200,000 views. And so we've been chasing the goose that laid the golden egg ever since. This is all an attempt to just recreate those yeah. figures. And then yeah, so there's two years kind of interviewing other people, which has been great. Um, but now want to make the podcasts more more now more about me and less about everyone else no more about actually what we do because you know we, we do work in the industry and none of our podcast talks about that and yes. we felt it was a bit of a shame because again if you know, for quick firing i've only just sorted the levels out now oh what did it sound like before it was hot on your mic. <laughs> and your mic. <laughs> that one was basically so silent. This after one, Aaron's only work in the industry. Yeah, so for for industry professionals, engineers who want to learn how to mix a podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you just suffer. It's, it's, not now. it's not worth it. It's, it's too much audio for so long and your ears just hurt. Okay, so we, we just learned one of the vital rules of this kind of content is cross-talk is an enemy of content. I don't cross-talk. So if, if Ruri's talking about how shit we sound, let Ruri go. All right, so we fixed the levels. Aaron's explained that we work in advertising music. We make music for adverts. It's been basically six years of learning how to do that on the fly, and it's been quite the wacky adventure. I'm sure over the next 12 episodes, we're going to get into that. Uh, there's going to be an episode that drops on the last Monday of every month. Have I got that right, Nathan? That's correct. There you go. Enthusiastic Nathan. Yeah, the episode calendar. on the last Monday of every month, you're going to get having a gas. There'll be a different guest every time. We're going to talk about different stuff every time. Um, Nathan, why don't you just free associate and see what comes out? 
What a stupid idea. All right, we are going to move on <laughs> to an item. And the first item is, actually, you know, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to chit-chat about today's big news in entertainment, which is that the Academy Award nominations came out. And Aaron and I noticed something interesting, which what is... What is the Academy Award? You're under 21, so you are, have the right to ask what the Academy Awards are. They're a prestigious and fancy award for good films. But what we noticed was the Oscar nominations came out, and obviously the BBC Live report it, and they talk about the important nominations, best director, best actor, stuff like that that people care about. They didn't talk about best score. And then Aaron noticed, we don't even know what won last year's best score. Anyone know? Anyone round the table have a guess? Oppenheimer would be my guess. That was was this year. We are on about last year, Nathan. Last year, it was... Oh. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, what what good music was on on a film last year? I really can't think of any examples. I don't even remember films from last year. What film cleared up? Oh, it was that weird one, wasn't it? Last year, the cleanup film. That was a good, very good film. That's exactly what it was. Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I still haven't seen. Did that win Best Music? It should have. Let me see. No, it can't have done. It was really good, though. Oh, no, no. Best Original Score last year was an actual, uh, was not a goat, but it was an actual solid soundtrack. Can I please wait? Can I guess? Yep, go for it. Can I have a clip? Minecraft. Minecraft the movie. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can have a clue. It is a bleak film. Is it um, a, a bleak film? Have I seen it? I think you have, but I, oh, I don't live your the, life. One of the war films. Uh-huh. Uh, what was it called? All Quiet on the Western All Front. All Quiet, yeah. Absolutely. All Quiet on the Western Front won Best Score, which I think was actually well-deserved, but... Was that a movie? I thought that was like turned into a little short series. No, no, no. It was, uh, it was a movie. It was a, an anti-war novel from 1929. Yeah. A German anti-war novel. Um, and uh, yeah, basically they made a really, really solid movie of it last year. And it was, I, watched it I thought it was one of the best films I've seen in about like 10 years. Uh, but everything everywhere all at once cleaned up. But yeah, so that was last year's. And we just noticed this year what like how important are movies really to the mainstream? Like they're nice entertainment now on the side, but they don't quite capture the public imagination the way that like, you know, Titanic or Lord of the Rings did. I feel like there's been a revitalization of uh, appetite to go to the cinema and Sit I guess down, so. yeah. enjoy a movie on the big screen where it's sort of meant to be viewed. And uh, my housemate and his uh, his girlfriend went to a posh place in Manchester the other day. We can sit down, pay a bit extra, and they'll bring you wine. They'll bring you like caramel popcorn. It's a premium cinematic experience. Okay, so uh, we've cleared up cinema in one or <laughs> two sentences there. No, but seriously, I think it probably is going to be Oppenheimer, but I hate to have to say it, Oppenheimer was a good score, but it wasn't, it, I, there was no mind-blowing music in it. Like, well, as in to, no... to compare it to like John Williams, mm. I think would be wrong, you know. Everyone does get compared to the GOAT, don't they? Every, that's just what happens with every score ever. It's like, is it as good as Star Wars? And the answer's <laughs> yeah, always no. That's it. And that's a... just what happens every year. It's like one of those games at like a fun fair, you know the one where you have a, you, you have to punch a punch bag really hard? And yeah. Some massive guy gets the top score, and the rest of the day is spent chasing that. That's what film scores is now. Yeah. John Williams is a burly bloke who punched the punch bag in 1977. But the, you know, the, it's completely different now because so little of Oppenheimer is melodic. Everyone remembers the when all the stars are going around, right? What is it? But I'm there. But could you could you sing another cue from that film? Really? Maybe except when the the getting the setting the bomb. The white noise of a nuclear explosion. 
but most of it's sound design. Yeah, yeah, the sound design was exceptional, absolutely. But yeah, abs- true to form. Yeah, I could only sing some of the stuff from the soundtrack album because I was like listening to it in New York this summer for some reason. And to make the takeoff from JFK slightly more stressful, I put the Trinity Test music on while we were taking off. It was actually bloody awful. That. This this relates to something that's gonna. I think uh, I think it was spoken about in our, our podcast. Yeah. yeah, you've heard this, right? Yeah. So in the in episode two coming up in about a month for anyone listening to this, if you aren't listening to this in the future, which you almost definitely are. Uh, episode two, we got Rory Sutherland, a big, uh, a big. What would you call him? Advertising celebrity, really. Advertising, advertising man. Yes, advertising the man guru. who vapes on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. And in episode yeah. two, he actually talks about the fact that um, when he gets on, he has his wife had to tell him off because he kept getting on planes and watching air crash investigation <laughs> on the seventeen-inch screen. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Before we get to Andrew Sheps, I would like to thank this episode's sponsor, Eventide Audio. Eventide make groundbreaking, super creative plugins. Here at Gas Music, Aaron barely goes a day without using the H910 and the H3000 harmonizers. Isn't that right, Aaron? Yes. Thanks again to Eventide Audio. You can learn more about today's sponsors by following the link in the description. So yeah, uh, on to another item. Why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we pick up Rory's story? You got a story for us this week, Rory? The, te- the, 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 the gimmick of this item is Aaron has the right to stop the story at any point. Yeah, so what we originally... So Rory has a, a lovely, lovely habit, um, as I work with Rory all day, every day, of kind of starting a story. And, and it has a lot of tangents, and it'll be a bit rambly, and, I, and it's brilliant. But what I would really like is a buzzer to kind of stop the story at any given moment. All right, so what um, we're going to do so for we'll this make episode, a buzzer. yeah, you will just slam your hand down on the desk. That's a very strong word, though. What was that? What work with. Work with. Work stuff work in front of, I think, is right. So Aaron's just going to slam the desk this time, and we'll insert a buzzer sound effect that sounds like this. Once again, that sound is this. Give us a story. Um, okay, so it was earlier, like, after you mentioned the name of the section, it was Rory Sturry, and then I mentioned... Oh, that reminds me of uh, how I learned to spell my name. Let's go. So I couldn't spell my name until I was in P5. What's P5 for the English? I don't know. That's your problem, right? (laughs) How old are you in P5? I don't remember. Like, uh, okay, so you're like five and P1-ish. So I don't know, like... You, eight, say you didn't, you didn't know how to spell your name when you were eight. Oh, oh give you see my fucking name. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's go. You're in P5. Um, so P5, so that would be like, what, eight-ish, somewhere around there. Um, and I couldn't spell my name because it is the Gaelic spelling and is overly complicated. R-U-R-A-I-D-H. And I couldn't spell my last name as well because it's also complicated. Because they decided, uh, my parents were like, yeah, O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T. Just like elephant with the wrong vowels. Yeah. Um, So I couldn't spell um, either of them very well. I think I could actually spell my first name, but I probably couldn't spell my last name. Um, Anyway, I learned when I went to the little camp for dyslexic people, uh, where they put (laughs) multiple dyslexic people in a room. And Did they lock the door? Or yeah, or? and then they bully us, and they just kind of like come in with a stick, and every so often they just slap the back of your head. Did it make you do spelling tests? What spelling? It's like a Vietnam flashback <laughs> yeah. at this point. So yeah, they they put us in a room, and we're basically like, "Yep, you're all very special." Um, and so we had to. I remember what we did was it was lo- basically they either shoved you in front of a little like PC to play like silly little spelling or learning games. 
or like Bin Weevils. Do you ever play that game? I've never played Bin Weevils, but it, I've seen it, and it's basically something like that. <laughs> Except one of them was just these random shapes and colors that would appear across the screen. And you had to click, but I don't remember. This is my memory. Rory, can I can I interject? Does this story have an endpoint? Because if it doesn't, it I'm does going, have an I'm end going point. to buzz quite It does soon. have an endpoint. Okay, carry on. Because um, uh, where was I? Yeah. <laughs> my memory. Uh, uh, anyway, the base. The, the whole point is they were trying to get us to learn how to spell uh, through fear and intimidation. This can't. This is a lie for factual reasons. I can't say that. But um, the reason this reminds the right, Rory. I'm really sorry. It's I'm done. Literally I'm about really to get sorry. To the end. It's done. No, it's done. I'm buzzing. I'm- All right. Do you want to know the the whole end point? Then it's because to learn how to spell my name, I made an anagram with like story. Sit tightly on Rory's yak. Or Rory's yak. That was it. We're moving on to the next item, which is... Don't even know why that was... That was... Okay, great. We don't even have a sponsor yet, but uh, basically... Well, no, even tied, technically. We've listened to some better podcasts than ours, and we've basically stolen the content, so Nathan is going to bring some knowledge to us right now. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to tell you a tale. I'm going to set the scene. So the year is 1913. That rhymed, uh, which is great. The venue is the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées in Paris, and the occasion is the premiere of Stravinsky's avant-garde ballet, The Rite of Spring. Following the dress rehearsal, attended by press and invited guests, Stravinsky was positive about a peaceful premiere. However, critic Adolphe Bochot, proverbially a canary in a coal mine, predicted unrest at the public premiere. It was an astute hunch. The concoction of Stravinsky's brutally discordant harmonies, cacophonous sonic stabs, and the crude stomping of Vaslav Snijinsky's choreography caused, as Stravinsky himself recalled in 1962, a terrific uproar. Attending the second night, journalist Carl van Vechten suffered an entranced audience member sitting behind him, rhythmically beating on top of his head with his fists. A large part of the unrest was driven by socio-political factionalism. <laughs> it's, got, it's got very history essays. You're just reading Wikipedia <laughs> article, Nathan. No, I, I wrote this. <laughs> I wrote this. I'll, I'll skip the boring bit. Please do. So some 40 of the most aggressive audience members were ejected, and by the time of the infamous sacrificial dance, a degree of relative silence had fallen upon the hall, but later... People started flinging objects at the orchestra. So they were doing nothing wrong. What we're saying is Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring was like the first punk rock gig that actually caused a riot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the idea of like the audience just flinging shit into the Whatever the they could find. It's like the Bohemians hated the rich people in the boxes. And oh, there was just so much anger yeah. and heat in the room that the poor um, the musicians... The revolted. They, the, yeah. Puccini himself described the Rite of Spring as the work of a madman. <laughs> And um, I think <laughs> I think it signalled the uh, crumbling status quo. It signalled the end of time. <laughs> this is a peel paragraph. That would be my link. That was, that was beautiful. That's which is why really in the film Oppenheimer, he's listening to the Rite of Spring and throws a glass against the wall. <laughs> nice. That's just supposed to symbolise that moment that Nathan just gave to us. All right, so the reason we wanted to do it this way is because basically I was like, this is a weird business to work in. We need to actually spotlight what the kind of metronome of life is so like. It's surprisingly here. similar to how it is all the time. And we're kind of doing it yeah so um all right we've done Rory's story nathan's got his hand up like it's a classroom what (laughs) can we do a quiz please all right right question number one this was for rory uh 
and it's the Scottish uh, theme question because you are Scottish. Uh, which influential Scottish music producer produced Vroom Vroom by Charlie XCX? I have no clue. I'm going to ask ChatGPT in tandem. It was probably... Aaron, you can steal. It's Calvin Harris, isn't it? Nah. Frick. Oh, let's see what ChatGPT thinks. No, Calvin Harris. He's the only Scottish man ever. Oh, oh. So according to this, it was produced by Sophie. That is correct. Yeah. So, yeah, to Sophie, Scott, Scottish producer and artist known for her innovative and experimental approach to Wait. pop music. What else she, she made? I don't know. She was at the forefront of the um, PC music. Uh, As in personal computer, not politically correct. What does it... It's, it's just known as PC music, but I don't actually know what it stands for. I'm asking ChatGPT. ChatGPT is going to be Chad everyone. ChatGPT is going to tell you, sorry, I can't help you with that. PC music. my terms of the guy. PC Music is a record label and music collective that emerged in the early 2010s, known for its avant-garde and hyper-pop music style. Sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. So Sophie was at the forefront of that. Yeah. There's a great song by Sophie. I believe Sophie was the transgender artist, right? Correct. And unfortunately, she's no longer with us, right? Yeah. Sophie, I will say, has an amazing track called Is It Cold in the Water? Recommended listening for everyone. Um, so, right, Nathan, next quiz question that doesn't involve the deceased, please. This question is for Mr. Aaron Bentley. Um, who's definitely not looking like a crim today in his black beanie and black jumper. He looks like the character who is uh, a rotten apple on Grange Hill. <laughs> Which having a gas guest mixed Glimpse of Us by Joji? That's actually a great question. No idea. Pink um, guy. Who? Pink guy. Bro, Pink this question eye. is not for you. I don't care. You can steal. No, no, I have, an, I'm I have to give an answer first. Sure, no, no, no. the quiz is... The delegate gets to answer, and then if they get it wrong, someone gets to steal. I know, but I quite like the lawlessness that Rory introduced then. But go on, Aaron, it is your question. Can I narrow it down, and can you tell me if I'm in the right narrow, and then can I pick someone? Is it either Andrew Sheps, or I don't really know if we've actually interviewed, or is it uh, it either Andrew Sheps, Sean Everett, or... John Paterno. More recent than that. So it's none of them. Greg, do you want to steal? Completely wrong Wait, I'm having a gas guest who mixed yes. something and it's not one of those. Glimpse of a spy. You that, Nevo? Nah. Rory? It was... Who have you had guests? Right, the answer was Jeff Ellis. Oh, of no, course it makes was. a lot of sense. Jeff Ellis is actually a bit of a goat as far as mixing is concerned. He's he's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I yeah. interview with him was very thorough. Greg sort of wound him up and let him go for the whole hour. It was one of the few people, aside from Rory Sutherland, who I've had the smallest window of time to speak with. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, wow, is there more questions in this quiz? Hit me with it, baby. Okay. Um, Greg Owens, yes. our esteemed creative director, mm-hmm. name all four artists on the 2009 hip-hop anthem Forever. I don't even know one. Oh, my God. Hip-hop anthem. Is it, is it stylized with a number four, Forever? No. Damn it. But like, there's a four of the biggest hip-hop artists of, of, at the time. Was one of them Jay-Z? No, other than Jay-Z. Was one of them Eminem's? Yes. Okay, so it was Eminem's. Uh, was Fiddy one of them? Go. Yeah. Fuck. Snoop? No. The biggest of all time? <laughs> no, the biggest of the moment. Oh, right. in, I know, 2009. I was really not cool at that time, so I had no idea who was in. And I'm not cool now, but I was seriously bad. Mr. Worldwide. Not Mr. Worldwide. I'll tell you. Was, was one of them puffy? <laughs> Sorry. Wow. It was Drake, Kanye West, Lil Wayne, and Eminem. Yeah, it's super obvious, isn't it? Damn yeah. it. Damn it. I should have known about Forever. Okay. 
All right, we'll have more. Okay. We'll have more questions in the February episode. One tiny little story before we wrap up for this pilot episode, which has been great. It's been shorter than I expected, but it's also because this is clearly off the rails, but also great. Uh, Which is that, Benley, we were in Rack Studios, were we not, recently? Yes. What were we doing there? We were super... What was it that? I just, I, for some reason, I just got distracted and emptied the trash on my mat. <laughs> <laughs> we were supervising the behind-the-scenes shoot for Tom Grennan on a Gillette ad that we worked on. I think supervising is... Supervising is a really generous term. We, <laughs> we were, were there. there. We were just there, milling. Attending Tom Grennan's behind-the-scenes session. Um... But uh, what I thought was really cute was that the, uh, so there's like, there's a certain, uh, what would you call it? Like there's a, there's a, a bubble of reality that famous people don't need to be part of. You don't really need to know people's name, for example. And so there was a adorable, not adorable, that's the wrong word, but there's a really decent mix engineer there, wasn't there, called Mike Horner. Yes. And Tom um, Warren just referred to him as Mick for the whole day. And Mike's very polite. He's like, Mick, we're ready to go, yeah? And, uh, you know, Mike took it like an actual, actual soldier. Uh, he's just WhatsApp me, which is why I'm talking about Mike right now. Uh, were, any, were there any big takeaways from that day that we're allowed to say on Mike, not Mike Horner, but on this microphone? No, no, there genuinely aren't. It was a great day. We all had a lovely time. <laughs> the food was really good. And for contractual reasons, that's all we can um, say. And it was and it was good. And uh, Tom put on a great show. Yeah. And it looked really good. We've just seen the BTS shoot footage today. Yeah, looks good. We're really not good. in it. And it was a pleasure to work on that project. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if we talked about this, but um, yeah, we we mixed the music for the for the Gillette ad for with Tom Grennan for the Gillette, the best a man can get. Aaron mixed the song that's going all over the world right now, and it's and it's everywhere, which is really good. And yeah. it just took a long time. Um, we're currently and and yeah, we're currently working on different languages, which taken a very long time. Yeah, so. as in not translating the song, but just trying to learn some because we. Uh, well, I mean, we're now. Um, on a lot of these calls with the Procter & Gamble team and the people in Europe. And it's so embarrassing. I attended a, a French recording session last week and everyone's just there chatting away. And someone like Christoph Waltz in <laughs> Glorious <laughs> Bastards goes, uh, should we switch to English for uh, for guests? And I was like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Yeah, they also the have to like sort of learn the song in the language when you're mixing it just to kind of like chop up the lyrics into, and put them in the right place. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, the the beginning of that process was done by dear old Nathan DeGiorgi right here, our very own Oxbridge punter. And uh, yeah, you uh, actually wrote the lead sheets for this international campaign, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, the was a... Yeah, I don't Yeah, I don't know what we can and can't say, so it's probably safest to not say anything at We'll all. run this by someone who's actually called Mick before it goes out to see, uh, see what we can say. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, let's do it. Don't uh, want to have to edit this. Uh, Rory, you have to edit this because, frankly, you editing this raw material will inform the future shape of the podcast. That's we'll true. Know. I can be the one that ruined this. It's a what? What, Aaron? What? Come on, you got. I'm not going to say anything. You're gonna, you can say it because I'm going to put it forefront and center. No, no, no. no come it. on, let's wrap it up. Come All on, right, we're going to we're going to wrap it up. We'll be back at the end of February. Uh, this drops on what January 29th, something like that. Yeah, Nathan nods and doesn't say anything, so I look stupid. And uh, yeah, there'll be another one. So it's going to be the last Monday of every month. There's going to be a new episode of Having a Gas. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the uh, interview with Andrew Sheps. Uh, thanks for bearing with us as we basically just improvised our way through this pilot episode to find what the shape of it is. 
Uh, we hope that you liked Rory's story. We hope that you that Aaron had his feet up on the furniture for the whole thing. Hope you could tell. And um, I mentioned it at the beginning. Yeah, uh, no, there you go. So I wasn't paying attention. No, it might have actually got cut off. I know she the when the mics were sizzling hot at the start. Oh, it yeah. just sounds <laughs> like pure white noise. I love the part where so. my brain starts to hurt after like twenty minutes of listening to raw mics. Yeah, that's the, our favourite moment. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. It's been a blast. This is Having a Gas, new Having a Gas episode one. There'll be more to come for the rest of the year. Last Monday of every month. Hope to see you there. Hope to hear you there. Don't know how to say this. See you in a bit. Tatty, bye. There's only one person I've had on this show who I barely, I didn't, I couldn't even get a word in, which was pleasant because sometimes I just want to relax. Uh, so you're number two on the list of people who can really talk. Number one was um, Jeff Ellis. Right. Um, are you? I don't know if you're. Are you aware of Jeff? I know the name. Yeah. So he engineered Channel Orange for Frank Ocean famously. Right. And he, right. Did, he doesn't talk about that loads. He actually kind of he asked me on the podcast and afterwards to, to kind of back off mentioning Frank Ocean because he's like Frank's really private and just doesn't want to be the center of attention or anything. But so Jeff does that, and yeah, Jeff was just. Um, marvelous to listen to because of, you know, his kind of energy, enthusiasm, but really it was just an hour of, of me just listening, you know, so that right. was great. Maybe this will be the same. I'm going to make you talk. Okay, right. That's uh, the That's old, your gig. This is the sales <laughs> trick. My my uh, MD does that. I just Yeah, and you, you, have will, to you will mostly get more than one word answers though. Okay. Well, knowing me. No, so uh, we're back with Andrew Sheps, but IRL this time. It's a great privilege to finally uh, have you in the room. Thanks uh, for having me. To confirm that you're as tall as I expected. And um, you, we were just talking off camera, you're hot off the back of a Grammy nomination. This is true. Hear me with this that. is true. It's very exciting. This is uh, a nomination for Best Engineered Record Classical, which is not something I thought I would ever even be close to. Mm -hmm. I think I've mixed three or four classical records in my entire career. Uh, but this one is for The Blue Hour, which is Sharon Nova. Uh, the singer is amazing. A Far Cry's the string orchestra. And then there's some sound design. Um, five female composers. And the text is from a poem. It's, what did, it was 40 pieces? We just it looked was, it up. Yeah. 40 separate pieces. They all sound kind of different, and I am shocked that I got a nomination along with all the other engineers. It's not just me. Um, but yes, really, really proud of that record and amazed that it's been, um, you know, recognized in that way. It's great. It did sound cool. We were so vote for me. <laughs> is that So this is to the Grammy board, the voting board, watching, having a guess? Um, yeah, well, this is, uh, is it popular, no, the, it's, it's the entire voting membership. So it's thousands and thousands of people. Right. Is it like, uh, so in the same way that if you're in the Academy, you vote for the Academy Awards? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the Grammys, one thing I've always noticed is it's just huge. It's a huge ceremony. There's about 400 categories and about hundred are televised or something like that. Oh no, not even. I mean, the actual broad, the TV broadcast, I think they give away 10 or 12 right, at like most. Album of the years. But yeah all day before that in a smaller hall they're giving out all the other awards and it used to be almost like a really big meeting room so it was kind of weird but now it's in a it's actually in a theater with pitch seats yeah maybe it's pitch i don't even remember but i was nominated um for best reggae album for mixing a um oh my god we're going to be chopping this yeah <laughs> I was nominated for Best Reggae Album for a Ziggy Marley record nice. that I mixed. And so we go to the pre-show because that's going to be one of the, 
things. And because of parking, we got there, I don't know, 25 minutes late and I missed it. Really? Yeah. And it's just done and that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what order they do them in, but it's because there's so many categories and a lot of them are genre specific. Yeah. And the people who are in that genre are so excited that in a lot of ways, I enjoy that pre-show. And then there's a nominees reception the night before, which is just amazing because it's people from all over the world in categories you didn't even know were there, but they're all super interesting and everybody's really happy. Yeah. yeah. So it's great. Well, I did. Yeah. I remember seeing you said there's something from every genre and it can get really esoteric. Like in, for example, jazz, I think there's like best solo and like best performance, best arrangement or something like that. But, um, but it, that, it does sound like the dream, like you say, the, for beyond the 10 categories, which are the center of the media attention, uh, everything else is presumably people who are more or less living the dream. They've kind of got to that apex and you can feel energy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some of the, the smaller categories, it ends up being a lot about name recognition. And so you don't know how much people are really scouring the stuff that came out, but they're also good about, like, I can't vote in every category. I think you can vote in all the main categories and then you can pick five of the genre specific ones, yeah. which is good because it keeps people in their lane and you know, you're only going to vote for stuff you know about. Yeah, of course. Which is good. Yeah. Um, but uh, so back to the record, we were just listening to a bit of it there and um, you know, you said that you didn't expect to be getting any attention for classical and I can kind of see why, because everything where your name comes up, it's generally with live band, generally. Um, certainly on the mix of the masters, which we're going to give a big shout out to just because that was more or less uh, gas music. It was like our training ground for how to mix. And it's been an amazing resource for like $30 a month. You get like university level education in mixing. And, um, your, uh, I think it's like a, a 90 minute tutorial, uh, where you mix a song from scratch, but again, you know, it's live band setup, but why or how is classical different when you're working on it? Um, Partly, it's not different at all in terms of what I'm trying to get out of it feeling-wise, yep. but then the mechanics of it are very different. Um, I mix very dry, usually, very little reverb, delays and very short things to kind of push things back. As um, in to push them out of the way of other transients? Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of to create a little bit of depth, yeah. you know, front-back depth as opposed to just left-right. So you're just creating the impression of the speed of sound is going to take a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, you just put a little ambience around something and it sounds further away, or you filter and it sounds further away yeah. and things like that. So, um, but on this record, and, you know, plenty of other records, like more... The quieter the record, the more important the space is that things are in because you really hear the space. It's not taken up with symbols and things yeah. like that. And sometimes that wants to be really, really dry. But if it's bone dry, it's kind of weird to listen to. So you have to find spaces that no one would notice were there until you took them out. Mm. Whereas this record, the reverbs became a huge part of the way I mixed the records. When I started the record, I spent a couple of days just building a new template. So using a lot of the template I already had, especially for the vocals, because I've mixed Shara's voice uh, many times. Yeah. And it was going to be a little bit different because this is a very classical approach and a lot of the stuff I've mixed for her hasn't been. But I knew that the strings needed to change rooms a lot because musically it's 
not all over the place, but it changes quite a bit. There's some very, very traditional pieces, one of which goes into a bit of the Brandenburg Concerto. Oh, right. And then goes back out into the more experimental stuff. Um, and some of it is crazy. Some of it is very, very quiet. There's a lot of pizzicato, a lot of effects. And so I just decided really early on when I heard demos and things like that, that I wanted the reverbs to be a part of the mix because otherwise, first of all, you're not really paying attention if you just put the same reverbs on that whole record because the techniques are so different as you go. But it would also be boring. There are 40 pieces. It's over an hour. I don't remember how long mm -hmm. it is, but it's long. And you don't want people to get comfortable. You want them to really listen to each piece because you're going around five different composers. There's just a lot going on. And I felt like by changing the spaces, like the one with the Brandenburg, the reverbs shift completely as you go into the Brandenburg. It becomes much more of a chamber orchestra and then it becomes much liver with longer reverbs as you come out of it and um and then there are weird delay effects there's one that goes through speakerphone so i just felt like for me i wanted to keep it really interesting so when the loud stuff is loud i want it to be super exciting and i want the quiet stuff to make you want to cry and that's exactly like every record i've ever mixed but on this one the tools were different yeah it reminds me of the uh uh Someone you recommended to us, John Paterno. Yes. He was talking about the mix being part of like the performance almost. Or you've got to really, it's not your performance. You've got to understand what the music's trying to do. But I, and tell me if I'm wrong about this. I get this impression that one of the boundaries between amateur and professional is that amateur, which is what I would consider myself to be, you're just trying to kind of set levels, get things right, but then basically leave it alone. Whereas what you just described as a lot of, comp my, it sounds like a lot of complex automation to get, like movement to get the record to change ambiences? Yeah, it's not necessarily complex automation though, because on a lot of stuff I do, it's just mute automation to go to different effects in different sections or something like that. But it's the balance of the effects that's really important because you don't want to necessarily notice that they're changing because that'll take you out of the performance. Right. But you want to, it's almost just giving the listener nudges to say, check this out, check this out. Ooh, this is exciting. This is quiet. This is in a big space. This is right in your face. Yeah. And that is all to enhance what you think the emotional point is to the way it was done. And sometimes it's very static through a song. Sometimes it changes a lot. Um, yeah, it's very different. But yeah, I don't know if it's an amateur pro thing because I've heard really young mixers who just have that thing and they get what's going on. Yeah. Um, and it's not always complicated. Like Al Schmidt, probably, arguably one of the best engineers ever in the history of engineering ever. Unbelievably simple mixes. Mm. But his balance of reverb and then his level balance are just perfect. Re yes. Van Gelder, same thing. Those Blue Note records he did 50s and 60s are just incredible. And sonically, he's not changing a whole lot. I mean, obviously the recording, they're amazing at that as well. But the mixes are very, very simple. But what that means is the tiniest change and it's not as good. Yes. But with Al, I've been able to be in the room while he's working quite a few times. And it's just these tiny, tiny things. And all of a sudden it just slams into 3D. Yeah. And it's incredible. And he's done. And it takes him, keep hitting the microphone. <laughs> um, and it takes him minutes 
just gonna yeah, shoot like down and gonna go like that and then I'm gonna go like that. What do you think? How's that in shot? All right, we'll see how that goes. It's good to have the first time I've got a Grammy nominated engineer. Is, being able is to this thing on? Adjusting mic. Like, yeah. Um, that, so it sounds like, so the few things to pick up on there, but it sounds like uh, I was incorrect about the difference between amateur and pro is that amateur is fixed and pro is dynamic. It's more that pro is you're sensing the intention of the music and trying to push it further into that. Ruben Cohen said the same thing about mastering. He's like, you're trying to get, so the if the intention of the music has been well captured by the mix and enhanced, then the master is supposed to just add that extra bit of connecting to the audience. And like a good director, you, you kind of mentioned this, a good director on film gets you without you knowing it to direct your eyes towards stuff you're doing that, but it's like you're focusing the oral attention. Yeah, and I'm not bothered about the stuff that you were implying an amateur would go for, where you sort of have some checklists that you go through and make sure that stuff is right. Yeah. And I don't care because it's right until it's wrong. Yes. So as soon as it bugs me, it's wrong and I got to do something about it. And a lot of that's traditional stuff, but the entire point of the mix is emotional. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, the, I probably said this last time that my sort of internal definition of mixing is you're solving emotional problems with technical tools. Cause that's all you've got. It's easy to say, oh, I'm going to make it so exciting. Well, how are you going to do that? Yeah. It might just be level. It might be EQ. It might be effects. It might be panning. I mean, it could be a million different things, yeah. but it's what's appropriate to that song at that moment and that element that's within the song. And that's going to be different every time. You have a template, so you've got, you know, stuff that works more than once, but then you've got to build bespoke stuff. And it, you know it's wrong because it just doesn't feel the way you want it to feel. Yes. And um, you are... Um also bringing into play the idea, you know, you said it was technical, which gives the false impression that it can be taught by, uh, it can be taught by a kind of mathematical process. You know, you always want to, not as simple as you always want to be hitting a certain level, but your snare should always be in the center or whatever, something like that. Um, but um, it sounds like there's a membrane you kind of pass through when you get to a certain level, which is you are not at all being prescriptive you are, you know the techniques well enough that you can forget about thinking about the techniques and you're guided by emotion and trying to react instinctively and impulsively. Yeah. I mean, I actually think that education is a great way to start because the whole point is you need to know your tools well enough that you don't think about them. Like you just said, if as soon as you start thinking about the tool you're using, you've lost the perspective on whatever it was you were trying to do. Yeah. And that is the hardest thing about mixing and the most important is to stay creative the entire time you're mixing. Because as soon as you go down a little rabbit hole, you're going to need to take a break. Once you start thinking too much. Well, it's not even thinking. It's, well, I mean, it is thinking, but it's thinking in a different way. It's the thinking practically. Mm -hmm. It's the, okay, I think it's going to work if I do some EQ on this. I yeah. really start poking out these frequencies. And then you're like, well, should I use a dynamic EQ or whatever? And unless you make that decision quickly, it's going to be very hard to hear if you're actually accomplishing what the point was in the first place until you get away from it and yes. come back. Yeah, there is. Everyone Everyone talks about this in the creative sphere, the kind of the decay of uh, excitement for a creative impulse. You have to be able to kind of reach for it quickly and test it so that if, the, like you said, the longer you spend thinking about it, you're kind of losing sight of that inspiration. 
you know? Yeah, I think it's a loss of perspective more than anything else. You need to be always trying to listen as a listener, not somebody who knows what's going on. Right. So if the snare is bugging you and it's taking a really long time to sort it out, fine. You know, you sort it out as you can for that moment. But so many times I've done that, spent a lot of time on one particular thing. And then I come back the next day and hear it like, and well, twisted that's it. still bugging me. Yeah, It's bugging me for different reasons, but it's still bugging me. So the it's about being able to consistently identify the problem mm-hmm. and know when you fixed it. And you have to have infinite perspective for that, which nobody has. Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, as in the infinite perspective is, is, a, is a really useful way of phrasing it. Um, on the personal level, I think mixing is something that it's never going to be my wheelhouse because of, I think, attention. Like, I, uh, as in, you know, um, I'm uh, one of the ADHD cohorts and it's very, very difficult to stay on something for a long time. But kind of what you were saying there is you don't want to stay on one thing for too long, but it's more that um, in the middle of solving one problem, you feel yourself trying to go off and solve another one. And then you go like, I'm trying to do the snare. Actually, the low end from something else is getting away. Let's go fix that. And oh, wait, now something else is bugging me. I do that all the time. Okay. All right. So how do you manage that that scatterbrain? I don't. I just assume that if something was bugging me before, it will bug me again later. Okay. It's not like something's going to get lost. Like, oh, I forgot to do this. Everything that needs doing raises its hand and says, I still suck. Yep. And then the other thing is that if you spend too much time cataloging what you don't like, you might be wasting time on stuff that it'll turn out doesn't matter. So I think in a way being a magpie is actually not a bad thing because you're drawn to the stuff that's bugging you the most. And when you keep sorting that out, other things become less important and kind of be whatever they are. Whereas if you really spend time on that thing, then it would almost become too important. And then you'd probably feature it a little bit more, but you've lost the song because you forgot about the thing that you wanted to go deal with. You know, it, it's just a matter of always trying to focus on the big picture, which means the thing that's distracting you is probably more important than the thing you're working on. And if it isn't, you will come back to the thing you just ditched. Right. So that's like a case of trusting your attention, trusting what's pulling you towards it. Yeah. And the the thing you have to do on every single mix, if you're going to work that way, is to not kid yourself that you're done. You've got to come in fresh. You hit play. You get all the way to the end. And all you want to do is listen again because there's nothing you want to change. That's the signal. And then you send it out and, you know, you get a million notes back. It's not like it's the perfect mix, but it's as soon as there's something that bugs you, well, then you're not done mixing. So you mix some more and you wait until a fresh listen can go by and you're great. Yeah. How do you, I want to get back to the, um, I'm so sorry, I forgot it. The blue, what's the record? The blue hour. The blue hour. I keep wanting to say the blue Nile because, uh, because that's a band. Yeah, of course. And our founder is obsessed with the blue Nile. Um, so we'll come back to that in a minute, but one thing that I find eternally distracting, and I don't know if this is just me, I'm, I'm hoping that some in the audience will find this useful is how to switch off the visual cortex. So I, w- I watched your mix of the masters, and for example, you're in. Um, I, I, will, I will find the tutorial I'm talking about and link to it because I should remember the name of the band. Um, on the guitars, you know, you dial in a Kramer Pi because it gives it some nice mid-range saturation. But I noticed whenever you were doing stuff like that, you would kind of not be looking and just trying to 
only listen and go, yeah, that's right. That's yeah, I've kind of got this open mouth thing. I, having the videos is terrible. You don't like being You know, the listening face <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's also, I keep things kind of small and my screen is pretty high resolution and it's a little far away. So like, what would I be looking at? Right. You're trying to make it more difficult to obsess about it. Well, no, I'm not trying to make it more difficult. It my eyes are making it more difficult. But it's it's more that when I need to find something, I want that big checkerboard of audio and it's all color-coded and it's really easy to find things. Again, not to fall out of the creative flow of, I need to fix that. Where is it? Um, but there's just, there's not much to look at. Like, if you put that Pi plug-in on and... You just, or it's it's actually the HLS, I think the Helios EQ, yeah. where you just switch it in and you get a little bump at that frequency. Um, you switch it in, like, what are you going to look at? There are, what, four knobs? Yeah. I think so, yeah, there's nothing to look at. And I think the other thing is that when you are looking at stuff, it doesn't matter. Like, there are people who will get scared when they realize they've just added plus 12 at <laughs> some frequency. Yeah. But that means there was really almost nothing there, but you want to hear it. So maybe you need a second EQ yeah. to get plus 30. I mean, who knows? It doesn't matter unless it sounds bad. So that's the visual thing I think you can get in trouble with. And for performances, when you're recording, the visual is definitely not something you want to look at because, and that's, I never show grid lines right. ever. I will sometimes work on the grid and I will push drums to the grid, like whatever, if that's what's appropriate. But don't give yourself a visual reason to do stuff. Now you, when you say you'll never show grid lines, you mean like you will never be, okay, there's the perfect quantized tempo and I need to be trying to push the performance into it? Or? Yeah, just in Pro Tools, there's a button to show grid or not and it will extend grid lines across the audio so you can see it. And that is, oh, I mean, it's off because it just makes the screen look messy to me, but it's good that it's off because I will never say, oh, well, look at that. That's early. Like if you take the the funky drummer sample, which is on five million records, and put it against a grid, it's everywhere. The John Bonham snares late every single time, and that's what makes it heavy. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and you can quantize that stuff. I mean, Rick Beato's done videos where he quantizes Zeppelin drums, and it makes a big difference. And I don't think those records would be as good, but it's not like it's horrendous on the grid, but it's not the way people play. And like Joe Barisi is a really good friend of mine. One of the things he loves about tape is you can't see the downbeat. And what he thinks make the, makes the downbeat bigger is things happening at different times. Yeah. Because it's got this huge rolling impact as opposed to just a bip. Yes. Um, yes, that happens in some Zeppelin records where, yeah, I'd like you say, big downbeat, and you can hear that Jimmy is slightly ahead of John Paul Jones, and like you say, it gives it this slightly bloated transient. Like, yeah, but and some people hate that, yeah. you know, and for them, they would fix it, and that's yeah. that's fine too. But it's yeah, don't just like with everything, don't give yourself a reason to go after something which isn't to do with what you just heard. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, it's like yes, yeah, so decluttering the visual cortex, uh, as you as you said, you know, if having a grid gives you the impression that there's a rule you're not following. Turning that off will just release you of that anxiety, even if it's like subconscious. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if your visuals are are messing you up, you just need to go take a break because you're just not listening. Yeah, that's all. And if you're someone who needs to close your eyes to listen, do it. There's a plugin that Massey 
plugins did called Listen, which just opens up a window the size of your screen <laughs> and it's blank. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris Shaw, wrote one uh, that does the same thing, but it has an oblique strategy in the middle. Oh, right. A little Brian Eno cut. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, whatever you need to do to, hitting it again, whatever you need to do to make sure you're listening is whatever you need to do. Yeah. And okay. as soon as you're not, just take a break because it's exhausting to beat your head against something. Yeah. And the break could be you work on another song. Like, it doesn't matter, but get away from the thing you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think the temptation uh, comes from when, you know, you are, like a lot of people are learning out in the wild without a mentor. And so you see something, for example, you see a piece of advice like, uh, the further away something is, the shorter the transient time is, or the closer it is, the longer the transient is. And so then, you know, you can spend time kind of like looking at the number on like the R compressor or the 7.6 or something, being like, right, so I want it to feel close, so I should go for 30. That sounds like the right. And then you're not listening. You just, yeah. I've never even heard that. Right. Okay. There Does you that go. work? Uh, probably not, because I'm I'm going to try that at home. <laughs> so that brings me on to something, by the way. So we got some questions from the team back at Gas Music, and we're going to go to some comments as well at some point. I just forgot to, I handed my phone over to Chris. I'm going to ask for that back in a second. But um, so... As I said, Aaron, my sort of uh, the, the senior mixer at Gas Music, um, one of the big things that was useful for him was learning from your templates and mix with the masters. And there were two big moments for Aaron that had pushed him forward into the realm of from amateur to sounding and feeling more professional. Do you want me to stop, by the way, midnight tribe, or are you good? No, no, you have. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right. Um, and so the two big. Uh, breakthroughs for Aaron. One was from Sean Everett, and that was to do with focusing on each frequency area. So, you know, sub up to 100 and then, you know, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But with you and your template, it was thinking not in terms of disparate tracks, but groups, so kind of simplifying the amount of information you're trying to think about. Do you do a lot of processing at the group level? Uh, so you get your drums. I know you said something like this when you were first on having a gas that, you know, you'll try and get all the drums behaving as if it's one thing. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And I mean, drums are just such a weird thing and nothing else is like them. But so I will process kick. Doesn't matter how many tracks that is. Snare, doesn't matter. Toms. And then all the rest of the stuff meets up with the kick, snare, toms. And that all goes to a stereo aux, if I'm mixing in stereo. Um, that's the drums. And then that is what sends to most of the parallel stuff I've got. And I'll EQ the kit. But I EQ or compress individual elements as well. Again, that's just like, oh, the kit sounds too dry. Let me find a room mic and smash it up and bring it up a little bit. Now it's got too much cymbal. Let me EQ that. Let me get rid of the transients on it. Oh, now it's sort of making its own reverb or whatever. Um, but like, I don't think I would ever process all of the guitars together on a rock track because some are going to be distorted, some will be clean, some will be counter melodies. But I will take all the rhythm guitars and put them into a stereo aux. Right. And part of it is just because I'm lazy. Like, if they're going to get kind of the same thing anyway, why would I do it individually on four tracks? Yeah. That's just super boring. And I've got a macro with Soundflow. I hit a button, name the folder I want them to go into, puts them in the folder, color codes the thing, routes it, and then I can just pop an EQ on it and get all my So way. it's that, that, that quick route to the actual decision you want to make. Yeah. I want to take all the rhythm guitars and make the mid-range poke app. Great. Hit a button, rhythm guitars, wait a second, EQ find the frequency, push it up, done. Yeah. yeah. And so, so so, not everything gets treated at the group level, but the big thing, um, and this will lead into Aaron's question, one of the big breakthroughs uh, on yours, because it breaks through, plural, um, is... No. Okay, 
I will take. Uh, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say no because breakthrough is one word. Yeah, let's go with that. All right. Uh, any grammar pedants? That's like times out. Yeah, yeah. It was always. I was from a, a grammar pedantry family, and so they would like have weird discussions about. Well, it's it's surgeons general, not surgeon general. Well, it's attorneys general, yeah. so it would be surgeons general. But I still can't get my. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I, moving on. Back to the mix bus. Mixes bus. Um, that was a, a big breakthrough. Was there's a lot of pro, a lot of processing going on at the mix bus level, and you know you describe it as the sound of your console. I've heard other people describe that as uh, not necessarily referring to your process, but when we just described it abstractly, you know we have a, a pretty dense mix bus that is very much influencing the sound. There's you know a kind of a, a left right compressor in, in, in uh, you know fifty percent wet. There's a bit of stereo widening at around ten k and all of this stuff. And someone would say that someone said to us that's kind of cheating. You know you're doing a lot of the mixing right at the top of the mix. Who says it's cheating? It's probably someone who believes that there's a rule, a correct way. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, of course. Does it, it sound good at the end? Yeah, if the mix is, is good, then it doesn't matter how you got there. It's not like you don't have to struggle. Yeah. There's some mixes, like one of the My Brightest Diamond songs, that's the band that Sharon Over, the vocalist on a classical record, has... Um, I work on things alphabetically when I start a record because that's just what I do. I like to work on the entire record. I open up the first song. I don't know how long I worked on it because I didn't remember even the next day. But when I got back around to that song the second time, it was done. Mm -hmm. Everything else needed tons more work. I was just sort of prepping the rest of the stuff. But that song was done. And you could tell because nothing annoyed you. So... Let's say I did all of the processing on the individual tracks, but still it only took me an hour and a half. Right. Is that cheating? Mm. Yeah, it's like the result is the same. Does it matter which road you went down to get? Yeah, I don't... I mean, cause then then templates are cheating because that has processing in them. And But I don't think anybody who mixes a lot doesn't have things that are tools that they use that are more complicated than a plugin. Yeah. I mean, my templates got some pretty straight ahead stuff and then some really complicated stuff that I spent a long time to build for something, found out they were useful for other things. So I need to build that from scratch every time. Yeah. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. And I think that it's like, if you want more top and bottom so that the mid is up to you on that mix, well, great. I've got a happy face EQ on my mix bus. And that way, the mid range is the thing that I'm constantly making decisions about. And I'm super specific all over the mix on that. But there aren't that many things with low end. Yeah. I get rid of the low end that's in the way off of things just because I hear it as being in the way. And now I got more low end. Like, it's fine. I, you know, the difference between boosting something at 30 hertz or 40 hertz, it either sounds good at 30 or it sounds good at... Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't... I really don't see it that way at all. And I don't... I mean, at the moment, I don't have any dynamics processing, but I think I've got three or four different things that EQ. I mean, sure, I could probably put all that in one EQ, but that's just not the way it evolved. Yeah. And then I see them as layers of sonic something. And I don't necessarily even really think about them as EQs. Mm -hmm. They're color to the mix. Yeah. 
And not because they're, you know, pretending to be vintage EQs or something like It's not that. It's a character that you've learned. Some of the curves are complicated. Some of them are really straight ahead. And it's just like, I'm not really sure about this. And so I turn on one of the other ones and it either is like, oh, great, that's the thing. Or that's totally wrong. I now need to go figure out why it's totally wrong. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't. I don't see being prepared to mix and staying creative as cheating. I would really argue strongly that that's kind of the opposite of what it is. I think um, the uh, the the idea when we were discussing this with someone uh, who who was resisting the idea of mix bus processing um, was suggesting that 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 treating the entire stereo mix at the end of the chain is yeah some kind of uh, lazy behavior when we were saying it, because we were subordinate to this person's expertise. So obviously there was a bit of a power dynamic going on, but you're saying I, I, it sounded like the implication of his suggestion could only be that in order to achieve a big cohesive glued sound, you always have to do that just by work, working on each channel and you can never do anything at the stereo bus level. I, I mean, look, if, if that person does great mixes or just likes their own mixes mixing that way, then absolutely. Um, but yeah, to have a to have a concept of what you should be doing technically to do a mix, yeah, it's just it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's whatever is the best path for the song to feel the way you want it to feel. And then in that case, I mean, does that person refuse to get their mixes mastered? Yeah, because that's exactly what that is. Mixable processing. So, and if you have a great relationship with a mastering engineer, then maybe that is exactly the way to go. But I want to hear what it's going to be from the beginning. Yes. And you're kind of pushing it into that membrane. Yeah. And there, and it, it's not like I'm slamming into lots of compressors because literally there's no compression on the mix bus. There's a limiter at the very end. On most mixes, it's just catching transients because they've never been compressed on the way there. So you have to do it. And even my parallel compression is very quiet lately. Mm -hmm. I'm that's not just, using that, that. That's just where you are at the moment. Yeah. And that could change, you know, but yeah, I did. There, nothing is cheating. Absolutely nothing is cheating because you don't get a prize for the most complicated mix. Yep. You don't get a prize for the most simple mix. Al Schmidt's mixes are ridiculously simple and they're some of the best ones ever. He has mix bus processing when he worked. He had a um, three band compressor and uh, some EQ. So like, is that a problem? He's one of the best engineers in the history of engineering. So yeah, I just, it's not that I disagree and think, well, no, it's not cheating because that's cheating. I just think there's no such thing as cheating. Yes. Period. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it sounds more like what you were describing off mic when we were uh, at the beginning saying this. Uh, people who are at the top of an industry, let's say, or, or the, the, the the bigger they are, you, you said something like the more relaxing they are to work with or relaxed they are to work with. Not always, but generally that's the rule. And there's a, a sort of a there's a layer beneath or, you know, the, how do you, how do I put this? The further you go towards the top, the more likely you are to assume that anyone above you is kind of hacking or cheating or doing something. Yeah. I mean, that's a really different, a different, um, context yeah. for it, but yeah, it's just, 
I mean, when you're starting out, it's hard to know what to do to make something feel the way you want it to feel. I've been mixing for a really long time, so I can just talk about that because generally I can beat my head against it until it starts to happen or have to say, that's not going to happen with what's here. So now I need to find a different way to make this compelling, not give up. Yeah. I mean, in the phrase I always use is the only thing that matters is what comes out of the speakers. That is the answer to every single question about mixing. I mean, I could just say that yeah. to every question you ask because loop that. <laughs> the process only matters while you're doing the process. Nobody else gets to see your process. No one knows what it is unless you're like me and you do interviews constantly about it. But yet it's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. If you're lucky, 99.99999% of the people who hear something you work on have absolutely no idea what it is you even do. Of course. They hit play, they like it, or they don't like it. And the more people you can get to like it, the better. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's it. It's not, you know, I'm not like making a counter argument. I just don't understand the argument. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Uh, and so to drill even further into a question that can be answered with just whatever comes out of the speakers is the right answer. Um, back at Gas, some of the team wanted to know what's on the mix bus at the moment. Because when you were doing the mix of the master stuff, there was a little bit of dynamics going on. There was a bit of compression with the Shadow Hills. Uh, what's happening right I now? I don't think Shadow Hills. Probably was the 33.6M9. Oh, right. I'm probably wrong about that. That I was a fair child, but again, that might just be for Yeah, tone. no, that, was, that one was for Tone. Um, and that came off the mix bus because, and I do this every once in a while, like I find something like, oh, it just always makes stuff sound better. And then after a few months, I say, okay, what's happening with the level here? Mm. Then I level match it and then I really assess it and like, nope, gotta go. Like all it's doing is turning the mix up. Yeah. That's what I was getting out of that fair child. Um, but yeah, there was never any compression on that. It was just running through. Uh, and then I think the 33609 was probably still on there. That has a really specific sound and I just got sick of the sound mm -hmm. and I miss some of the things it did, but yeah, just couldn't deal with it anymore. So right now there's an EQ, then there's another EQ that has a little bit of stereo widening. Then there's another EQ, all really different things and the eq and the stereo widening one is just a tiny little high shelf but that one does some low-end stuff sometimes uh and then i'm sure i talked about this before i've got a reverb that's 15 percent wet that is in a way kind of doing the job that the compressor used to do by gluing you yes. know people love the word glue so we'll use the word glue yeah it glues things by smearing the stereo spread and it just mushes stuff together in a good way. Yeah. Uh, and then a limiter, that's it. That is, you, you know, you mentioned gluing there and it is a kind of, it's a colloquial uh, metaphor that's really caught on. Um, and there's very likely to be no layman in this audience, but for any that are, I guess it's describing the really subjective feeling of something feeling like lots of different elements to feeling like it's all been like shrink wrapped or surround. Well, it just said it all goes together because I think like if you go listen to the Steely Dan records that everybody, you know, holds up as some of the best sounding records ever made. And I wouldn't argue that at all. It's super, super clean. Every element is in its own space and everything. There's a huge amount of definition, but it never occurs to you that things are sort of sticking out. Yeah. So it's, it's just the idea of 
everything living in a place that makes you listen to the song because mm -hmm. they're glued together. But it doesn't, I think people start to get really specific about it, that it has to be dynamics processing or it has to be, well, usually just dynamics processing. Could be harmonic distortion. It could just be that your balance is insanely good. Yeah. It could be anything. Um, but, but it's a subjective feeling. Yeah. I mean, it, and again, like there, there are a lot of sort of hi-fi terms and I'm not quite sure what they mean, you know, when they talk about sound staging and things. And I'm really not, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak to it necessarily. But for me, it's just about the sonic world it lives in and the balance that makes you live there and not get distracted by something that's happening sonically. Yeah. Make sure you're not like listening to a, to a mix. Yeah. The worst thing that's ever happened is I did this one song with a guy. Um, and every time I played it to anybody, we got to the end. They're like, man, that snare sounds great. Like, well, okay. Cause I was really struggling with snare drums at that point. Like yep. I had a couple of years of the snare just always sounded like crap. Yeah. But like, okay, that's not what you want people to say. You want, you want them listening to the song, not this element of it. Yeah. Um, and so counterintuitively to push against the point you were just making there, why was it you were struggling with it for a couple of years? I think. And I've learned this lesson a million times in my career and I'm still learning it. I think it's because I decided beforehand what the snare was going to sound like and I couldn't get it there instead of the snare has a job to do driving part of the rhythmic element that is the drums. And there are a thousand different snare sounds that will do that. Yeah. And, you know, you can get 20 or 30 different sounds on the same song that would do it. But the ideal one in your head is most likely only going to work on a very small percentage of the songs that you work on. Mm -hmm. So it's just stopping having sort of preconceptions of what stuff should be. And it, it's something, and I've seriously only just kind of gotten this concept straight in my head, and I'm still not always living by it. But whatever you pull up first is going to sonically inform everything else that you do on that mix. The mix, in terms of how it feels, that's something I get to check with stuff in my head when I listen to the rough. Mm -hmm. Listen to the rough and like, oh, can't wait to do this, or that's going to be amazing. And sometimes you don't do those things, and sometimes you do. But I'm never thinking, like, when I bring up the kick drum, I have the way the kick is going to sound. It's like, bring up the drums and like, ooh, this could be a really thuddy kick and this yes. needs to be a pointy kick or whatever. I need to make sure I can hear the little roughs on the snare in between the big hits. And so that's the important part. And it, again, it's just, you know, the only thing that matters is what comes out of the speakers. But yeah, when you're really bummed out that the snare drum you're recording or mixing doesn't sound like Steely Dan, for instance, yep. then you're struggling when you really not accept defeat with the way the snare sounds, but accept the world that snare is in and make it great. To make it work, optimize that record, as opposed yeah. to thinking it's something, a bad habit we fell into a lot at Gas was saying, like things like that snare is wrong, that kick is wrong. If you're using samples, that could absolutely be the case. Just, you know, go through some others, but it's the, especially on a live drum kit, it's how much transient is there how much decay is there? How long is the snare and how bright is it? 
Yeah, those are the three things. Well, and then you could say how much body, like 200, you know, lower mids. Those are the four characteristics of a snare drum. Yeah. Right? How hard does it hit? How bright is it? How much body does it have? And how long does it last? Yeah. Does it kind of take you to the next kick drum or does it hit and stop or whatever? But those are concepts. They're not sounds. Yeah. Other than bright and, you know, body. But again, that's going to be different because it'll depend on what the kick is doing. It'll depend on what the guitars are doing. And and again, it's all in context. You know, oh, that snare sounds great. Now you put it in the guitars, they eat up all the mid-range and now your snare sounds dark. Great, another 16B a top end. Brilliant. Fun. Um, you mentioned if working with samples, it can be the case that you can swap it out. Do you do m uh, much work with sampled, anything sampled drums particularly? Almost none. I do kick reinforcement more than anything else and every once in a while a snare and if toms are a problem like the recording is either not great or sometimes there are no tom mics or sometimes there's so much symbol in the toms that you really can't chop them because you really hear the symbols come in yeah so in that case i might reinforce with samples there because i want the toms to be a big deal and they're not being a big deal and that's the only way to do it but that's I do it just because there's no other way to get it to work the way I want it to work. So for kick drum, it, it's sometimes it's just easier to add low end with a sample or add point with a sample. But then with my channel strip I've done with Waves, we just did an update. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it is we put in these super resonant filters. So you can use the high pass filter on 18 dB per octave with a bunch of resonance, and it basically will ring at yeah. whatever frequency you put it in. So you can tune the fundamental of the kick drum to where it, it feels good in the song. Oh, so if you're using that way. a high pass with a resonant notch and trying to get that to like 30. Yeah, so you tune that to 30, 50, anywhere in there, it's gonna sound like that's where the drum was tuned. Right, okay. If so, that's a problem. Yeah, let's go into that. This is the Omnichannel 2. This is your new product with Waves. Yes, I mean, it's, it's an update to Omnichannel. It's not brand new, but we added some stuff. Yeah, okay. So it's, do you think of it as a, like a sequel? Oh. It's more that when we built the first one, it was about the every track tools. I wanted all the different colors of EQ in one EQ. I wanted all the different types of compression I liked in one thing. I wanted the harmonic distortion. And most importantly, I wanted all of that stuff in one window. I was sick of putting the same three or four plugins on almost everything that I needed to process and then having the different windows and flipping between them. And it just sucks. So part of it was just logistical simplification. Absolutely. So that's what I wanted. And I drew up the spec for it and I talked to people at Waves about it and they were really into it. And so we built it and that's what it was. It was supposed to be my Swiss army knife of not overly colored stuff, but not clean. And not with just one character, because that was the other problem is most of the channel strips then were either very, very clean or they were Neve or SSL or API because that's what they were supposed yep. to be. Whereas I like some mid-range EQ on Neve and API, so they're both kind of in there. And then it was all tweaked from there. So that's what that was. Then however many years later, it's more years than I think it's something like almost 10 years or something stupid. Well, the Omnichannel has been out for oh, the best part of a decade. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> um, so then there was like stupid stuff that I do a lot. And I thought, well, just by adding a couple of knobs for the UI, if we can get the DSP for this stuff, 
we could do this. So the new stuff is, there's a new compressor mode, which is soft, which is more like Arvox than the three models that were in there. So it's a very soft knee. Um, and it's just a style of compression we didn't have. But then there's a fourth uh, harmonic distortion mode, which destroys things, absolutely destroys things. And it's not really like a lot of the destruction stuff you can find elsewhere, because the other ones will get really, really bright as you go, whereas this one actually gets darker yeah. as you go. Yeah. And then with the filters, we put an 18 dB per octave, which you don't have to have resonant. You can just use them as steeper filters, but they have adjustable resonance and they get crazy when you use the resonance. So you can create the bottom end of a kick drum just by dialing in the high pass. And then with a the low pass, quite often I will use the crazy distortion and get it super crunchy, but it has no top end. So then I'll use the low pass with a bunch of resonance and dial where I want the top end to come back because it gets this big peak. So just short of whistling, you know, just wide enough where you don't really hear a frequency and that will add top end back onto the destroyed thing. Right. So it's like just made. a resonance to just give a little bit of air. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you think about synth filters, as you make them more resonant, they start to whistle. Yeah. And they whistle at the frequency because it gets so narrow. So keep it just wide enough that it sounds more like EQ. And not like a specific than a resonant pitch. Yeah. peak. And then, yeah, it just adds top end back in. But it doesn't really manufacture it in that case because it's just you're using that as an EQ. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the low end, you're manufacturing it. That frequency may or may not even be in the kick drum recording. So it's... so. So it can actually put in frequencies that aren't there. Because it's ringing. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, so it's not generating. So anywhere near that frequency will set off the ringing. Right. Okay. I'm excited to try that out now. Is it available as part of the Wave subscription? You if you have Omnichannel, you have Omnichannel too. It's just the next update pushed it out and there's a two, and a few extra knobs. So you designed it to be that you can rearrange the series as well and, and what goes into what in the right way. But it's interesting when you're talking about the harmonic distortion, you know, saturation, that is always one of the things that has bugged me again with, with, with the impatiences. Most of them you dial in and it just becomes like extremely bright and very harsh. And was part of your intention with this to give some kind of saturation that doesn't immediately offend and can... Well, I mean, unless you're cranking the knob all the way up, I don't even think you should necessarily really notice it. Yes. I mean, the way I describe it, and maybe this is technically wrong, but I think it makes sense, is if you're going to EQ something and it's recorded very, very clean, you basically have the fundamental and the harmonics, and that's it. When you start adding harmonic distortion, you're creating more stuff in the harmonics of that thing. So EQ becomes more noticeable, which means it's easier to just EQ and then you can pull the thing down and that mid-range will pop out through a track. Whereas without it, you end up having to be really specific about the EQ and it's gonna change more as you change chords or notes or whatever. So it just gives you more raw material to then shape with compressors or EQ. Right, or so you're not looking at the distortion as we distort and then leave it. It's like, it's giving you just more. It's yeah. just stuff to work with. I mean, look, it's what everybody loves about analog is that you get harmonic distortion for free. Yeah. You start pushing any level through an analog circuit, you get distortion and it sounds really good. And you wouldn't say, ooh, that's distortion. I mean, clipping is distortion. Like, okay, now we're squaring the thing off, but yeah. it's just a subtle thing that makes it sound bigger. Yeah. 
So that's what it's supposed to be. Well, it's interesting. There's a quote that did the rounds on Instagram recently. Um, you know, there's always some um, there's always some strain of thought that catches fire and goes around like uh, mimetically. And a recent one was uh, it's always Brian. You know, it seems uh, some quotes about the imperfections of the the technology of your era will eventually become the character. And uh, you're talking about uh, distortion, tape saturation. Obviously, we know there's a lot of that to be used out there. And But I saw a real vindication of this idea when I was talking to Jeff Ellis. He said, I've been talking to the guys at, I want to say Isotope, but don't quote me on that, uh, about trying to model the clipping of Pro Tools versus Ableton versus Cubase. They all have a slightly different clipping sound. And so at some point, we're going to get nostalgic for the digital distortion. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yes, that's all there is to say about that. It, it's, you know, a point well made. It's as when the first digital stuff came out, lots of engineers were like, oh my God, thank God. And the, I mean, the story, it's not even a story, but the thing I always reference is, and anyone who used to do lots of sessions on tape will remember this. Now they may not remember it in the same way that I do. You got the machine on input, you get the drummer in, spend an hour getting drum sounds like man this sounds great let me record some we'll get the drummer in to check it out you record some you roll back you put the machine in repro hit play fuck because your transients are messed up and tones change a little bit but now it's like tapes the holy grail yeah what's great about mixing for me in the box is that I pick and choose who gets messed up and who doesn't. So yeah. certain things can get through completely clean and other things I can crank up harmonic distortion and there you go. Yeah. And now it gets, I don't even think of it as character. I just, it's just more stuff to work with. I really do see it that way. Character is when you really start pushing. I'll stop right there. You, did, you didn't think I was going to stop that? I did. It didn't look like a, a hard stop, but there it was. No, I saw that. I mean, to be honest, a, a thread of what you've been saying recently uh, in the last few minutes, you know, you, you're, you're trying not to hear it, but to get the information. Um, we were watching Dave Pensado and Jason Joshua as well. Um, I get the impression that Dave's like, you know, this beloved kind of uh, patriarch of the mixing world, like, you know, um, a, a very gentle character. I'm going to try and get him on the podcast, but he's so busy. Um, Jason Joshua was saying like almost all the moves have got to be like, uh, you know, it's not, not a hard rule, but you're not trying to make, uh, each mix move really big. You're building small things on top of each other. Does that ring true for you? Yeah. For the most part. I mean, like that's the rule of live, live sound. Something can be really messed up, but just move it slowly. Okay. Because otherwise everyone's like, what the hell just happened? Instead of like, wow, that's too loud. And then they forget about it because it's sinking down and, and all is well again. Um, yeah, you do not want the mix to distract the listener, period. And big moves usually do that unless they are something that's like, wow. But it's to do with the song. Yeah. You know, one snare hit that's got way more reverb than all the rest of them or spring reverb. I mean, that's dub. But it's always in service of the listener because it's cool. Yeah. Not because check me out, I put a bunch of reverb on that. Yeah, of course. And the spring reverb as well has, you know, you said dub. It's got this kind of delay-ish feel, doesn't it? Because of this uh, vibrating. Yeah. But um, should we just briefly talk about, because I, I did say I was going to get back to it. You were talking about sculpting and designing the reverbs for the blue 
Blue Hour. Hour. No, I was going to say River that time. The Blue Hour. Sculpting the reverbs for the Blue Hour. Because um, there's, it sounded like there was a lot to go into there. And then we're going to go to some questions or comments from the broader world, which is going to be exciting. But yeah, talk to me about the process of designing these reverbs. Because you said you're not really a reverb guy. Yeah, I don't. Every time I put reverb on something, it bothers me. Like it just sounds Artificial. weird and unnatural and whatever. And one of the things I learned from Al Schmidt is to blend reverbs. When you put two reverbs on something, it doesn't even matter what they are. They tend to fill in the holes for each other or something, uh, yeah, and it thing. feels a little more natural. And it could be a plate in the chamber or a hall. Like it doesn't seem to matter that much. So when I was going to start mixing the record, I thought, well, I've got to have a palette of reverbs. I can't be building this for every cue because there are 40 of them. I want to have a starting point. So I decided I'm going to have six. Okay. So I started, one um, was Mechanics Hall, which is one of the best concert halls in the world. People love that hall. And there are models of it in a couple of different reverbs. I think I either used Altiverb or Seventh Heaven. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. One of them, Mechanics Hall. Great. Sounds great on strings. Fantastic. Um, and the other five, uh, one of them is uh, like the SP2016 room, so an Eventide room. One of them, I built like two weird ones. One of them, I think I was using the Gigahertz, um, is it Megaverb? I hope so. Um, but the Gigahertz reverb, which is really cool and also can get very, very strange. Uh, definitely had another altiverb, which I would just load stuff until I found something if I needed to build something else. Uh, and I don't remember what the others were, but I spent time doing this. And then the very first thing I would do is after doing tons of grouping and routing, because some of those pieces, there are five recordings of the string orchestra because like, okay, we want to get the harmonics separate. On this one, the bass pits are such a big deal. I want to get that separate. and But we recorded all the mics every time because you want the room. You don't yeah. just want close mics. So there could be, you know, 80 to 100 tracks of orchestra. So everything is grouped by section and grouped by pass. And then they're VCA. So I just have pass one. And if I need to dive into it, I open the folder and then it sections. And then within that, I've got individual mics. What are we referring to by pass, by the way? Um, so just... It's not takes because we would use them all. Okay. It's, sort of, it's layers. Got it. Yeah. So you'd have one layer that is basically them playing the piece, but we would have dropped out a couple of things to then record separately as an overdub. Okay. And then uh, there's a lot of sort of murmuring and group singing, and that's the orchestra, which when they perform live, they just do it while they're playing. Oh, right. But we wanted that separate because I was going to treat it separately and things. So... It was basically overdubs to the main string thing. Um, and then the first thing I would do would be to just try and find a space that made sense for that piece. Yeah. And then with Shara's vocal, it was, is that going to live in the same space? Is it a different space? Is she going to be floating above? Is she within it? Does she have crazy effects that no one else has? And and every piece was different. So usually what would happen is some semblance of the more normal reverbs would give me a starting point, yeah. which would then be automated throughout the piece. That's like, normally I would never do that. Turn stuff on, turn stuff off. But it was really automating the reverb returns to change character and especially to change length. So when you're layering three reverbs, one of them is going to be the shortest one and you can bring down the two longer ones. And 
it doesn't really distract you, but you end up with less room on stuff. Um, and so that would be the first thing. And then if I needed something else, either the two weirder ones would be perfect or I'd have to build something for that thing. And it became such a thing that the entire album ends with a minute of reverb. And I kind of wanted it to go longer, but it made sense to, I mean, I actually had to dial back the reverb time to make it die out. It would have gone on for you know, ten so minutes. You had probably. more than one reverb that's sixty seconds in decay. Or? There was there was one in particular, yeah, that um, exists. But I, it's, I made an IR of an IR so I could stretch it. So because the IRs will always stretch longer than they are. Mm -hmm. So turn it all the way up, then do an IR of that. Turn that one all the way up, then do an IR of that. Yeah, and that became. This long one, because there was a, it's a super long one. It's actually the one that they, there was a Mark Ronson, like music production thing that was on Apple TV. Yeah. And at one point he goes in with the Altiverb guys and they take an IR of this fuel storage tank that's underground. That's just gigantic. But when I just tried that, it was amazing, but the frequencies were dying out and like, I don't know, it just didn't do what I wanted it to do. So then I came up with this concept of just stretching it. And it becomes more unnatural and it starts to ring more because it's just a really weird reverb. Yeah. But yeah, it just became such a character. And in some ways, that's to me one of the most emotional things that happens. Like there's very, very specific small things that are just rip your heart out with either the lyrics or the writing. But then to end at this spot where you've just been left in that world because otherwise the album just ends You're like oh great what am i going to listen to next mm. but you need a moment to just process but this is the yeah this is the you know the sensory deprivation tank while you decompress from having listened to the record so and i'm overthinking it probably most people don't react to it as viscerally as i do but yeah so that's my reverb project as, as the one as the one making it though yeah you have to think about it a lot more than the audience is going to uh, of course but it sounds like the way you described just a stretching an impulse response and then getting an impulse response of that of that impulse response. And I, I understand now why you say IR to shorten it. Um, first of all, how do you actually take an IR of an IR? Like what's the brute technical way of doing it? Well, the same way you take an IR of anything. There's uh, Altiverb gives you a frequency sweep thing. You play it through the thing and then it processes and it gives you an IR. So it's all things. happening in the box. You're not having a microphone and recording. No, 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 okay. no, no. This is all a plugin that I'm taking an IR of and then loading that impulse response into the same plugin, yep. cranking that one up, taking another IR and then using that impulse response as the reverb. Right. It's it's It reminded me of um, uh, John Hopkins. Are you aware of John Hopkins? Have I mentioned that artist no. before? So it's an electronic, interesting electronic artist signed to Domino Records and um, he uh, makes, I guess, like very, very dense high attention to detail, um, for want of a better phrase, kind of, you know, intelligent dance music. So it's kind of uh, a, a more, it's not like more accessible Aphex Twin, but I'm just getting belabored. Uh, I'm getting too bogged down describing it now. The point is- Well, square pusher with four on the floor kick. There you go. Yeah. All we'll the, say that. Yeah. But there are some, there is, I mean, listen, go listen to the kick in open eye signal. That's a, a one for the audience. Um, 
what he said uh, he was doing, someone did a Q&A and it's like, how, you know, how are you getting these weird sounds out of Ableton? He's like, well, I'm taking artifacts that are like problems and mistakes and then I'm boosting those and I'm getting more artifacts out of that. I'm boosting that. So eventually you've got like this third generation of digital kind of weirdness. It's all like, that's kind of what you're doing with the IR thing. It's like you're by the third generation of impulse response, you've got something that's not a natural sound, but it's- unique. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes lo-fi. And yeah, I mean, that's what's great about the digital stuff when you start stretching or using fewer bits is it gets messy in a way that analog stuff doesn't because analog, it's continuous. It's speed of light and it does stuff like you can pitch it down, just mm -hmm. pitches down. You pitch down the digital stuff, you start getting aliasing. And as you rip things apart, you get new noises within it. Like it almost sounds like they're ghosts in there because stuff is, yep, yep. you know, digitally flipping between values. And yep. so, yeah, you can get some great effects, but that's serious rabbit hole time. Like yeah, that's going to be, I'm going to spend two and a half hours on this thing. That's going to be half a second long and I'm only going to use it once. So you got to... Well, when you're on the clock, especially, you've got to be careful how you're using that time. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's more for composers. Like, I don't normally do that. Every once in a while, there will be something that I will chase and chase and chase. Like, if you're going to catch something in a delay, so like the last syllable of the last word before the bridge, and you catch that in a delay, and then you're changing the delay time to make it go up and down in pitch and feedback and all that stuff, I could easily take an hour automating that easily just till it feels exactly right because when that's done wrong it's really distract not wrong but if it's not the way i want to hear it i find it really really distracting the song would be better without it yeah. when i get it right as far as i'm concerned if you take it out that part of the song is now not nearly as compelling mm -hmm. so yeah things like that are definitely worth chasing but yeah as a mixer normally you got to be careful so you don't end up doing super like creative, wacky stuff. Well, I mean, it depends what your relationship is with the artist too. I mean, sometimes that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. That's not mixing. That's when you're sort of Producer. popping back into production for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Like Sean Everett is definitely one of those, like does loads of crazy stuff. But that's very much his vibe. That's the brand he's built. Yeah. And that's why people work with him. Yeah. So, um, so now, yeah, before we go to... Uh, let's say like user questions or something, but let's have the, the cell phone just in case. Um, what came out of that? No, I can't remember. So I'm just going to go to the questions. Right, let's move on. Some of these come from the uh, the gas team. Um, so I, my iPhone updated last night, and now it's giving me this uh, "What's new in uh, in notes?" So fantastic! I have to now get back and fill this awkward space with chatting uh, with what I'm here to do. It's that one. There we go. All right. So um, we've already covered what was on the mix bus. That was from Aaron. Um, uh, Aaron also would like to know uh, what is the parallel processing that you're doing with vocals right now? Let's talk about the Blue Hour. Um, that's the same as it's been for years and years and years. So there's a parallel Holtec LA2 Poltec chain, which there are a thousand videos on the internet where I talk about what that is. It's basically crank up a bunch of 8K, compress the hell out of it, take out the 8K, add some low end, uh, and you've taken out all the low end of the pre-EQ, and then you just blend that in. And it ends up being this kind of slab of mid-range that is parallel instead of it just being the entire vocal. And so it just really evens out the vocal, but as with all parallel compression, you've still got the uncompressed vocal. Mm -hmm. So that's first. 
Then there's still this concept of the rear bus, which is everything except drums. It's like an extra mix bus that you blend in. Um, And there's a stereo vocal crush, which is LA um, 1176, all buttons in, just very spitty. And it's like an aggression or a presence. Yeah. But like I said earlier, that stuff is much, much quieter than it used to be on my mixes. So for a while, all of that parallel stuff I would send to it at zero because that's the quickest way to get stuff to it. So it's a copy of what's going to the mix bus, goes to the parallel compressors. Those compressors had some level that I'd set over time and then they just sat there. That's what came into the mix bus. Then a few years ago, there was a mix and it was like, ah, it's, it's too much of the parallel thing. And I added a VCA that controls the returns of all of the parallel stuff. And so that was at zero in my template. And then I would turn it down a little bit and whatever. Then I noticed it was ending up at minus 12 or below minus 17 a lot of the time. So now it's actually all the way down in my template. And I only bring it in if I remember. And a lot of times I don't even like it. So strangely, there's very little parallel processing on my mixes now. And some would say that all that parallel processing is cheating. So now I'm having to do it without it. Right. So, and so how much, uh, so you, if you got, let's imagine you've got a visual here, you've got like dry signal and all this parallel signal interacting with it. How much, you know, there's probably no fi- fixed rule, but how much processing are you doing on each, you know, you, each item in the dry signal? You know, do you do a lot of work on the kick drums, a lot of work on the snare or? Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. It, it really depends. I mean, yeah, I'd work on kick and snare because they're usually really important on a rock track and mm-hmm. work on rhythm guitars, vocal, obviously, bass. I mean, but I kind of work on everything, but it's always getting the core of the song. Like, great. And now, okay, there are all these tracks I'm not really hearing. So what are they? Right. Should I tuck them in or do I make them a feature for a second? And yeah then go through the role. Once the basic song is being the song, then I can see what everything else does. And every once in a while, I discover something like, oh, that should be important. And I have to kind of rework that's where I'd started. It's really interesting because that reminds me of what Jason Joshua's pr- uh, process was on, on, one of, on one of his tutorials, which is to say that for the first, I think, 30 minutes a lot of what he was doing was just turning stuff off. It's like, this isn't the most important thing in the song. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't. What's in his language, what sells the song is like, is this massive kick, this 808, these finger snaps and maybe a pad. He's like, I'm going to get those to be like, absolutely like not only satisfying, but also loudness was a big thing. I need to get that so that here's my rough mix. It's that it's, it sounds like it's this loud. And now here's just the kick, the bass and the pads and it sounds this loud. Is that, is that analogous to what you're saying? Like, yeah, of course. It's, it's kind of, I mean, I do it differently because I'll start with nothing and I'll bring stuff in and then like, oh, okay, I don't think I need that. And I'll take that back out. And not that I'm not going to put it in later because I always try and mix what I'm given. Every once in a while, something will be in the way and distracting and I'll take it out and see if people notice. Yeah. But usually everything is in by the end of the mix. But yeah, I'm always trying to find the core. And then everything else kind of is, you know, ancillary. It's yeah. yeah, I mean, it might be really important, but it won't affect the groove, Okay, for instance. Yeah. It won't affect how the chorus feels, but it makes the chorus way more interesting. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but it's the transition to the chorus is, let's say, adding parallel compression on the drums and effects on the vocals and big rhythm guitars coming in. Like, okay, 
That's what happens with the chorus. Now I've got 15 arpeggiating guitars. How am I going to deal with that? Should I make a stereo thing that's panning? Should I just find an arrangement? You know. Yeah. Oh, as in, should you just find a place for them? Or yeah. 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 But all that stuff is secondary to this kind of spine of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Without the spine, the rest of it just doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, because it wouldn't be able to stand up to belabor a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so vocal parallels. Um, this may this may be a bit of an extra question, which is a word I've not used for a decade. Uh, when did you last use outboard gear? Um, you mean for mixing mm. the Ziggy Marley record? So that's that's when I was coming off of the console. Yeah. And I still use some hardware inserts on that record just because I did. Um, yeah. So when was that? That's a long time ago. Yes. Yeah, so it's all in the box now. Yeah. And I mean, it has been forever. And for, for almost all people, it is anyway, like now. It's very, it's more, it's rare that you find someone who's console oriented. Yeah. I mean, and if that's what gets you excited and makes you creative, I'm not, I have nothing against it, but I, you know, there are people who don't believe that I mix in the box. Yeah. Yeah. But look, Serban, who's arguably one of the best mixers ever, especially for pop stuff, he's the king. He's been in the box his entire career, as far as I know. Yeah. I don't think he's ever used outboard gear. It's, yeah. So there's no, there's no discussion to be had. If you want to use it, you can use it. Yeah, If you don't absolutely. want to, don't use it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the main thing that people can't believe about you is headphones, isn't it? I don't know, you've talked to, about that a lot. So, uh, you know, I won't grill you on that one. But, but yeah, at first people were like, how can you mix on headphones? How can this be possible? And the answer is, as with a lot of your stuff, if it works, it works. Yeah, if it works, it works. And I, I think that the the argument for it, especially for people who are starting out, is most likely you can't afford great speakers and you're certainly not going to be in a really well-treated room acoustically. Yeah. So put your studio on your head. That will never change. Yeah. It's all about translation. I mean, that's all it is, is that when you think it sounds good, it sounds good everywhere. And by sounds good, I mean feels good and works and, you know, whatever. If that's speakers or headphones or whatever, and like right this very moment, I'm trying to do the transition from the Sonys, which give me problems sometimes. I'm so used to them. And I know them really well. You those right 25 years, something like that. Yeah. Well, my entire career, I mean, that's right. what I've had for headphone in when I'm recording and, you know, it's, I've just been using them endlessly, but there's some issues like there's a big dip at 400 Hertz and it's yeah. pretty wide. And so it's hard to hear what's going on down there. And I hate, doing something and then realizing like, oh, great. Now I got to re-deal with this fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. So I've been using some Odyssey headphones and I'm kind of going back and forth between some of the models. And it's taken me a huge amount of time to even get to the point where I wanted to have them at home because I've listened to him at trade shows. This guy, Chris Behrens, who works for him has been amazing. I keep going up to him at trade shows. Like, hey man, can I, can I listen to some stuff like for a really long time? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no problem, no problem. And so... I think that will happen because the only thing I want is to be able to work on the headphones and not then have created problems I have to deal with on something else. Right. So you're hoping for like relative flatness, although flattened headphones can sound bright. Yeah. I don't even know if it's flat. I just don't want there to be you want no major problem. issues. Yeah. yeah. So. So we'll hope for that that 400 hertz uh, dip to, to go away. This is um, a question from our 
managing director and it's less about sound and um which is probably a blessed relief at this stage there's <laughs> uh, just you work with a lot of artists you work with some of the best in the world now you, often you're not working directly with them you know i know you've been in the room with john frusciante and people like that but you're not always sometimes it's just coming into you despite that of the people you've worked with who would be in a super group you know wh who would you like to see perform together maybe something you've never thought about um i mean audio slave was that yeah, super totally. group i mean not that there's anything wrong with Zach, but that was like, when I heard that was happening, I was desperate to work on it and to be able to actually work on that was incredible. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, as you say, I've been really, really, really lucky. Um, and I don't know, I don't know, because it's like things like the Chili Peppers, whether John or Josh or Hillel back in the day or Jack or Chad, they're just such a unit that they can collaborate really, really well. And that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, they're, they're definitely the sum is greater than the parts. Yeah, of course. Um, so I don't know. I'll think about it while you ask me something else. And if I come back to something, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I think about like singers, there's so many of them, like Chris Cornell, sing on anything. Yeah. Chester Bennington, just ridiculously great. Um, I mean, and while we're talking about ones who've died, um, Ryan Carazia, who's in the band Low Roar, which yep. has been a sorry, gigantic part of my career. Probably uh, by far the most important thing I've done yep. for a million reasons. And, you know, Tom York, who has not died. Thank goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, those four, and Anthony Kiedis, those five are completely different from each other and would be, would change any project that they're on, but any one of them singing on anything would be great. Sharonova. I mean, it's, I've been so lucky to work with so many amazing vocalists and then you could take that to any instrument you want. So I'm sure they're just combinations of them that have never occurred to me, but would be great. Yeah. But it would be some form of music that they don't do now. It would be a different thing. Yeah, which would be hard to imagine. And whatever people come up with spontaneously, you know, is unknowable beforehand. Yeah. You are right about the Chili Peppers being a real unit insofar as we saw them in Glasgow this summer. And um, halfway through the set, my friend I was there with Chris, he was like, this is a very stadium, arcadium heavy set, like unexpectedly. And one gets the sense that there are such a stage in, a career, in their career now that kind of before they go out, they go, Right, what are we going to do tonight? Uh, these ones, we've not done that one for a while. Yeah, yeah Anthony does a set list. Right. Completely Anthony. If you follow their Instagram, you'll see these handwritten ones that they've photoshopped into some very funny pictures. He just does that every night. Right. And, you know, there's some stuff like Give It Away is almost always one place. And um, I can't remember what's always first. But, you know, there are things that they do to bring in the show. I haven't seen this tour, but I'm assuming a lot of those are still in place. But yeah, it's just what he feels like singing. And the thing that's amazing is he gets the flow of the set right every night. And it's different every night. He designs like a narrative for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's intuitive or what, he, but I mean, they will stick in, like there was one show I was at where they played Skinny Sweaty Man in a Green Suit, which if you don't know it, go listen to it. It's very short. <laughs> um, you know, where the hell did that come from? But it was perfect yeah. in amongst the rest of it. And so they don't have, um, I don't know which big label 
have them at the moment. They don't have like some A and R going. Well, the, you know, the fans really want to hear. Oh God, no! They're they're at a point where they just do exactly what they want, and it's working for everybody. Yeah, they're kind of like I feel like they've graduated to my generation is like the Rolling Stones, just this un- unstoppable entity. Yeah, who will just go on now. Yeah, and but also world class musicianship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all ridiculous. They're all just absolutely insane at their instruments, but in a completely musical way. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that 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 is what's particularly rare about the about the Chili Peppers because they're kind of this unusual hybrid of they seem to be middle finger to the system, don't give a fuck, but really care about getting it right and getting the music right. Oh yeah, yeah, the music is is paramount yeah. all the time. So, have you actually been? Have you tracked sessions with anyone other than John Frusciante? Or yeah, I worked on uh, all the records that Josh Klinghoffer did right in between. Yeah. Yeah. How did he compare, by the way? What was the energy like? How was that different? I mean, it's it's hard to say, really. They're just different people. But Josh had played on a bunch of John Frusciante's solo stuff. Yeah. He had toured on the Stadium Arcadium tour as the fifth musician yeah. playing guitar and keyboard. So, I mean, he was in their world yes. for years. And he was in the band for 10 years. Like, it doesn't feel like 10 years because it went quickly for some reason. But yeah, I mean, he's great. And we we get along really, really well. And we had a lot of fun doing stuff, but I got along really well with John too. So yeah, they're just, they're different, but they're both very much in the Chili Peppers. I mean, to be able to go from Hillel to John to other stuff in between to John to Josh, back to John, and no one says like, well, that didn't really sound like a Chili Peppers record. Yeah. Obviously, Anthony being in front helps but they switch drummers still sounds like the chili peppers yep you know we're just happy to let the river kind of flow where it's going yeah i mean anthony and flea are the only two that have been there the whole time and i mean two out of four it's still pretty good yeah um but i think what it speaks to is how long the tenures are for the people that are there and i think you know if john hadn't wanted to come back to the band I would imagine Josh would still be there. Yeah. You know, it's not like they wanted to get rid of Josh. It's that John, as far as I know, and I don't really know anything, John showed back up and they had so much history with John. It was like, oh, okay. And they're not going to have two guitar players. Yeah. So, you know, I feel bad for Josh in that situation, but it's it's somewhat understandable in a way. Yeah. But it's not like they stopped being the Chili Peppers. No, no, no. While Josh was in. But there may have been a degree to which, I mean, he, I can't, I don't think I've read any of his statements about it, but there may have been a degree to which Josh was like, you know, this was always potentially going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and when John left, it was like, there was no talk of like, oh, I need some time off from it. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm doing something else now. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody knew he was going to be coming back or whatever. And then, you know, stuff happens. Yeah. And, um, well, I mean, obviously, they mentioned the Rolling Stones a minute ago. They've got their own very, like, real version of that, haven't they? Now there's no, you're not going to get Charlie Watts back. Now you are with Steve Jordan. And that's great to keep it in the family, so to speak. Steve Jordan, you know, he produced Keith Richards' solo records, great drum and all that stuff. But but yes, it's, I suppose, the blessing with the Chili Peppers is they still have everyone still here and, we can, you know, this, this dynamic movement is possible. So that's good. Um, so... Let's see, one more from the team and then we go over to YouTube for some of the comments. Um, this was just what I picked up. You said in another video, uh, you were talking about basically your taste. And you said, and, and, and taste is mysterious. You might not be able to say why, but you said, I don't like, I don't like happy. I don't like light. I don't like major stuff. Is that like, what, why is that? Or do you not know why? I don't know. 
it's yeah. just, it's an aesthetic thing. Like I like difficult, dark, dissonant, sad, angry. Like those are the things I respond to. Yeah. And it's why, and I might as well just say it in an, in an interview, which will get me in huge trouble. I don't like the Beach Boys. I appreciate it. I don't want to listen to it. I would rather hear God only knows in someone else's mouth. Like it doesn't, it's such an amazing song. Yes. And the lyric is incredible. And, and that's not one of their happiest songs. And I just don't, I don't enjoy listening to that style of arrangement and yeah. things. It's amazing. And I don't want to listen to it. It's interesting juxtaposition with the Beach Boys because you have the artistry of Brian Wilson, who is obviously going to be some, you know, revered to the level of some great composers. Um, very unfortunately, like tormented man, you know, I've seen a documentary about him and I, d I wouldn't wish to trade places with Brian Wilson, despite all that genius, all that brilliance, you know. Um, but it's weird to contrast that kind of, that brilliance with a really kind of salesman-y, preppy kind of, like selling California tourism kind of look, you know? Yeah, it's, obviously it's just the way he was hearing stuff, yeah. you know, and it, it comes out of a very long tradition of production that was that. I mean, it's not like they made it up, but they took that, brought it to the pop world in a different way and added some psychedelia to it. Like, you know, it's an amazing amalgamation of stuff that nobody else did. Mm -hmm. And to the point where, you know, it scared the shit out of the Beatles and they had to go make Sgt. Pepper because yep. they heard Pet Sounds. Yeah. But even Pet Sounds, I had bought the box set and I just, yeah. So it's like the genre doesn't matter to me, but the setting, because I'm not a lyric person. Like I appreciate lyrics a lot when I pay attention, but if the musical setting isn't something I like, then the lyrics aren't going to help me. And other people are totally different. Yeah. You know, they just listen to the story and the setting doesn't really matter as much. But for me, the musical setting has to be something that I respond to or else the whole thing is just lost on me. I think it's probably quite common as well because my experience is that fewer people try and craft outstanding lyrics than try and craft outstanding music. A lot of the time the lyrics are there so they have something to sing. But, you know, a Morrissey or a Kate Bush you know, or an Alex Turner. They're quite rare. They're like poets who set their words to music, you know? Well, I mean, think about singer-songwriter. Like, oh, just another singer-songwriter. You have to be a songwriter, a poet, someone who can advertise yourself, and you have to be good at playing an instrument yeah. and be okay performing in front of people. That's a very tough combination to find. That's insane. Like Leonard Cohen. Absolutely insane. Yeah. You know, and then you get someone like Nick Drake who had most of that and some of it better than anybody, but was not comfortable, you know, being in front of people. And so, yeah, to have all of those talents, that's crazy to expect all of that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I suppose like um, someone like Kurt Cobain is kind of the epitome of that person, but had a band for the kind of, you know, security of that. Because um, you mentioned being uncomfortable on stage, you know, I've heard that, Tom Petty was similar in that way and Coca Bain was definitely similar in that way. And I get the impression that there are some artists who, if they could, would rather not have the whole spectacle and show. I think it's, in some of those cases though, it's not even, it's not necessarily being in front of people, it's the fame. Like yeah. with, with Tom York, I mean, very famously, he just didn't like the fame. And I think 
the being in front of people is great, especially in a small club and people are into it and you have this connection. Yep. It's the, the, and look, I get the teeniest bit of this at trade shows yep. where people think they know you because I've done 5,000 videos. And they come up to me and just start a conversation and it's, it's incredible and I feel I'm ridiculously lucky that people care what I have to say about anything, otherwise I wouldn't be in this room. But at the same time, it can be really uncomfortable because they're talking to you as if you know them. Yes, and you're trying to do all the stuff that your brain's just processing. You're like, I'm trying to figure you out, but they're talking to you with this complete familiarity. And at the same time, they're probably, you know, they've been thinking about when they see me. Yeah. And so there's this kind of preconceived scenario in their head, which is what's playing out. And maybe I make people nervous as well. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it can be, it can be great or it can be really uncomfortable. But also it's like, sometimes it's like someone comes up and they don't even know what to say. Mm. And that's, you know, whatever, that's fine. I mean, believe me, I get like that around people as well, but I want to make sure like, oh, make it comfortable for them because this is a big deal to them. So, you know, always shake the hand, take the picture, like whatever, try and answer a question. But I can't imagine that all the time. I mean, I get it, what, seven days a year? Yeah. AS and NAM, like that's it. 365, like that would be really, really, really difficult to deal with, I would imagine. And I'm not pretending like my version of it is anything like what's going on. But you've had a kind of a a taste of what it's like to have strangers coming up to you with some level of familiarity. Yeah. Yeah. And some people, though, are like, that's the thing they're great at, like Taylor Swift. Mm. She was famous before she was famous. She'd already, and I'm making this up, I don't know her, I don't know anything about her, but it seems as though this was what was always going to happen. And you can talk about, you know, being a poet or not, and okay, maybe her lyrics are very direct and simple in a way, but she speaks to way more people than a lot of poets. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, her fan base is particularly, like, they feel like, it's not that they know her, it's like that she's part of their life. Yeah. Vice versa. I mean, they'll pay concert ticket prices to go see a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll pay $500 for the concert. Yeah. You know, like a lot, a lot of people I knew this year, more than I expected said, oh, I had to raid my bank account to go see Taylor Swift. Yeah. And then they want merch. How do you command that kind of loyalty? What is it they feel yeah, like? They she's get absolutely amazing. So, yeah, you know. And Michael Jackson didn't have the same feeling of like, that th- was the opposite. It's like, yeah. he's so alien that people went insane if they were I would, if they if he was in the room you know in 2009 we went to see when i was 16 oliver twist on the west end and rowan atkinson was fagin and that was the big draw and um before the show started a big line of security starts coming and everyone starts clapping like what's going on and the veil gets pulled back and it's michael jackson and the whole room just went insane and turned upside down and people were trying to fight their way to him and it was the opposite it was like the lack of understanding of this character turned him into this phenomenon yeah you know but also the insane professionalism that they devote to their show you know their show business craft but yes they command like absolute sort of religious fervor um and i think taylor swift's maybe the only one on that level right now well i mean you could argue beyonce as well i mean frank ocean when he had that record out to a point yeah um I, i was in the front row of a frank ocean concert in victoria park in london and it was there was a sense of religiosity to it because 
he spent the first five minutes just walking around the stage, not even singing. And wherever he went to, the crowd would just kind of go a bit mad. So, yeah. 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 So they're, they're definitely, yeah, there's a group of people who are like that. I mean, the Chili Peppers are like that at the moment. They're yeah. selling out multiple nights at stadiums, wherever they go, and people are going nuts for it. It must be insane because, you know, there's always a regression to the mean, right? No matter how ex extraordinary your life gets. There's an initial novelty and eventually that becomes normal. And what would it be like to find 80,000 people every night normal? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was actually on a, on a Michael Jackson tour way back when I did the Dangerous tour. And when we were playing Wembley, the entire stage was covered. So you didn't really feel like you were going outside. There was this gigantic tarp over the stage. And we never knew when they were going to open doors. So like you'd come back from catering, you had to go check something. And if the doors weren't open, you just walk across the stage. If they're open, you go around the back. And a few times, I didn't realize the doors are open. And you walk out and there are 60,000 people, because the other 20,000 are still coming in, who go crazy. And you're like, you didn't even know they were there. Yeah. And so for those people to show up for you must just be, I mean, you've got to like it a little bit or you just stop doing the shows yeah. but um yeah it's it's unfathomable yeah and like you said there's the, the the tom yorks of this world uh would clearly like a life like you know any one of us have where you just walk around anonymously though know? he seems to have completely come to terms with it now yeah i suppose after 30 years you know it was was that have you seen the documentary from the okay computer talk? oh yeah that's that's how you know meeting people is easy yeah and that's where he's very much not comfortable with it yet yeah but not quite at you know the level of like sort of Kurt Cobain um I just I should, probably should stop making that reference because it sounds a little bit uh dark let me just go to some YouTube comments here um from the first video you know the the reason that we that that this is the third time you've been on having a gas is uh not only because you give great conversation you're willing to talk and just you know can talk um uh you know you can go into these rabbit holes uh it's also because we got a lot of uh, response from uh, when we made cutdowns of your stuff, and we were like, "Wow, there's actually like hundreds of thousands of views here. This is a this is unexpected." Which is why we're fabulously wealthy. Of course, yeah, that's why. We, you know, this is this is a made-up set. We're actually at Pinewood Studios, and there's like twelve thousand people here. Um, so basically, I just wanted to go down some of the top comments, and um, they're not really questions as such, um, but uh, you know, interestingly, you know, like you said, it's not a practical thing but it's a creative thing but like one of the top ones here is like i love andrew because he is so practical about mixing and that's a sign off like 67 people have liked that right well but like i said it, it's an emotional thing but you have to use tools for it so you need strategies yeah there's um, another good one here it says i love this guy i noticed him and other masters don't stress meticulously gain staging every track i intuitively knew this was an overboard youtube hype it's necessary when you have an issue, but a complete waste of time if you're constantly looking and applying it, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, the gain staging thing is something I never understood. In analog, super important because every piece of gear has a maximum level it can put out. And as you approach it, it will clip and do all kinds of things. All digital processing now is floating point. So if you know what that means, it can be as loud as you want if it isn't something that has a threshold. Obviously, dynamics compressing, dynamics processing, you got to know what level's going in, but you'll see it slamming if you're going in too hot. Like, I, I, 
think that needs to be something that's intuitive. You just hear like, oh, I'm smashing something somewhere. And then you find out where it's too loud and you yeah. deal with it. But the, I don't think there's anything that will inherently get you a better mix by gain staging. But maybe I'm wrong. I just, I'm not even quite sure what the process would be. So I don't want to say it's a myth, but I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that, that was the thing, you know, we, we put particularly clickbaity thumbnail on that one with your face saying, I never gain stage and that provoked. Yeah. That well, and that'll provoke another shit storm on it. <laughs> well, I mean, you said something about AI recently and you were like, and I'm going to be wrong about this at the end of it. Cause you just can't, it's such a, everything's such a moving target. You can't make predictions at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, actually, why don't we, because we were literally only got five minutes left. This has flown by. Why don't we just spend a minute on that, not predicting the future, but where the industry is at the moment, you know, so. Well, here's something interesting. So last week or the week before was the Audio Developers Conference, which is mostly people who write code that does audio stuff. So a lot of people from plugin companies and researchers and just ridiculously smart people. Yeah. And for some reason, I go as right. well because I've written a little bit of software, but nothing like on the scale of what these people are doing. Uh, and it's amazing. This is the second year I've gone. It's absolutely incredible. And even though I don't get the nuts and bolts of what they're talking about, I learn a huge amount. So two things I learned this year. So um, we'll go to the easy one first. So I had a, a thing on the third day in the morning, which was uh, billed as an open dialogue between mixers and developers say, what do people actually need? Because I'd noticed the year before there was no perspective of the end user. It was very much about technologies that were available and what people were going to build, but it wasn't, I mean, you know, and obviously all of the companies that make stuff have feedback, yeah. but there didn't seem to be a huge emphasis on, wow, we've heard from a lot of people that they really need this tool. They're going after stuff. And I heard a couple of people say like, yeah, and then the artists will use it in ways we never thought of. And like, well, why don't you try and think about those first and see what happens? So anyway, so I did this thing and I'd asked lots of people I knew to say, look, what plugin that doesn't exist do you want? Nobody had anything. Hmm. So then I thought, all right, I'm going to do an experiment. So 24 hours before the talk. And I haven't looked at this since, so it's probably, there are thousands of responses now, um, on Gearspace and then on two different subreddits, I posted the exact same question. So in 24 hours, I'm talking to a bunch of audio developers. What plugin do you want that doesn't exist? And there were lots of people who responded and some of them were super funny. Like, I want a plugin that makes me a better engineer. Yeah. Like, but there were very few that were like actual I would like a plugin that does this. Most of the ones where someone said something specific, there was immediately a response from someone else like, oh man, check this out. Yeah. So the real problem is marketing. People don't know what's out there. So basically we have all the tools we need. We need people to be really creative, like write the song we've never heard, come up with a workflow. Cause it's not necessarily gonna be some audio processing thing that's never happened before. It's going to be, the way it's presented, the way you want to do it. That's why Freak Show Industries is one of my favorite plugin companies in the entire universe. Just Freak Show Industries plugins. Go there. I'm warning you now. I'm not telling you what I'm warning you about, but I'm warning you. Okay. So then the other thing is that 
everybody was talking about AI. Of course. Deep learning, machine learning, neural networks, huge, huge topic. And what I got out of it is that there is this thought that AI will take over something. <laughs> like this, this class of job will never exist again. This won't happen again. But what it really is, is it's making better cogs that are inside of those machines. It will still take people just writing code to do the front end and the back end, but there will be bits in the middle that are better at doing something and can actually make some decisions based on the input in real time, as opposed to having a preset that's like, hey, if you're putting drums into this thing, start here, yeah. guitars start here. It's like, ooh, something transient. I'm going to do that, but then everything on either side of it. So it's parts of processes. It's not the entire process that is getting replaced. And the huge issue, I think, is going to be uh, ownership of the training sets. You have to train these things. Yeah. So the thing that it makes is what everybody is focused on right now, like AI-generated music, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like who owns the music? I don't care who owns that music, who already owned the music that they trained the thing with so that it now generated this music. And how do you tell what they trained it on? So there was the famous case of someone making a track using Drake's voice. Now I went on YouTube, was like, how do you- That, that guy was there. Yeah. Yeah, I went to an hour long presentation where he talked about that company and it's hilarious. You basically just give it a phrase and it does a Drake song. Now, the music, I asked about this, the music is all original. They've yeah. written themselves a library of music. It is only the deep fake voice mm -hmm. and the lyrics that are AI. And it's hilarious, but okay, so that's a greeting card thing. You're not putting on a record yeah. that is the Drake thing. Now, still, Drake should be making money. Mm -hmm. But it's like, how do you tell, for example, so I, I just went AI, uh, how to make AI clone voice. Five videos tell you how to do it in five different ways and it's easy. It's like, uh, as long as you can get a sample of someone talking or whatever for about 60 to 90 seconds, you'll be able to do it. It's like, how do you know which bit of data they'd used to make the Drake voice and who owns that? And is it an interview or is it actually a record? That's going to be so hard to like scrutinize. It's going to be impossible. And I've talked to a couple of lawyers about it and there will never be laws governing it. It will be um, case law. So someone will sue somebody, there will be a decision made, that will now be the basis of the next decision that's made. It's gonna be, well, all law in the UK. There's yes. no constitution, it is all based on previous decisions, most of which contradict each other. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what this AI legal thing is going to be. Wow, so like, yeah, okay, I'm not legally trained enough to be able to weigh in on that. But all I can say is to prove how easy this thing is, you're going to hear me wrapping this up in the voice of Andrew Sheps, and we're going to take it from a recording that we own. So. Fantastic. But it's still my voice, so I own it. But I'll make sure that Andrew's saying that in my voice. I didn't sign shit. <laughs> okay, but it's been really good as usual, and 90 minutes went far too fast, uh, far too quickly. So, um, Andrew, thanks for coming. I know you live here in the UK, so it's actually, you know, you're not to fly over from California, so it's... Uh, no, but I do have to charge my car before I drive back. You have to charge your car, and here you are in the British countryside, so I don't know how you're going to... Interestingly, mm -hmm. according to the internet, mm -hmm. there are some high-speed chargers very, very close to here. Okay, we're not telling you where here is, but uh, Andrew, thanks for coming. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Really fun. Thanks for listening to Having a Gas. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to smash the subscribe button. 
please also check out the episode's sponsors. More about them in the description. If there's a guest you'd like us to invite onto the show, or if you have comments, questions, and suggestions, please let us know by going to our YouTube channel and let us know in the comments. There'll be a new episode of Having a Gas on the last Monday of every month, so do remember to subscribe, and there'll be shorter clips focusing on specific topics on YouTube. I've been Greg Owens, I'll continue to be Greg Owens, and this has been Having a Gas. Until next time, sayonara.